given your musical taste, I bet you'll like Coldplay. I do like Coldplay. I prefer Radiohead, but I like Coldplay. I prefer Energy. <laughs> what? That's probably a perfectly reasonable joke that I just did not get. No, you got it. So, John, tell us about the fountain format. Yeah, we mentioned this in the, the show where we talked about script notes. Uh, fountain is that markdown-like format that you use to write uh, screenplays. And at the time that I brought, we brought it up for the second time, I said it was invented by John August, and someone tweeted me to just clarify. It was created by John August, Nima Yusefi, and Stu Meshwitz. So three people created, not just John August. Don't want to just give credit to the one guy who happens to have a podcast that we listened to and talked about. And are still talking about. There you go. You know, I mean, like, this is the thing about the correction that that's small. Like, I think it's worth correcting, but like, you have no place to correct for it except in the follow up. So, like, if I just tweet about it and I have to rely on everyone who listens to the podcast also following me on Twitter. So, the correction has to go in the podcast. No way around it. Usually, follow up this, this minuscule, I exclude, but I think crediting is worth putting in. All right. So, uh, software complexity. Do you guys remember what I said about software complexity last week? It was uh, second only to parenting, something like that. Uh, I, I, you know, as always, I re-listen to the show. I'm like, oh, I want to make sure that I remember what I said. But of course, I re-listened to the show so long ago that I've since forgotten. Uh, but I personally got a lot of feedback about this. I don't know if all of you guys did. Did it? Did it come through the feedback form? A little bit came through the feedback form. But I got a lot of tweets, a lot of snarky, angry, and uh, questioning tweets. Oh, that's right. Because I saw Dr. Drang call you out on it, and you said that you would correct him. In my words, not yours. You said you would correct him at the in, in the next episode, and I'd forgotten about that. And I'm very excited to hear where this is going. Yeah. So it was like an offhand comment, something to the effect that uh, software is the most complex thing made by humans, or something similar like that. Uh, you know, or and I threw in parenting at the end as a joke. And it was imprecisely worded because I thought I was referring to an idea that everybody knew, like I was referencing something that was shared knowledge with me and the audience, and that we all, all knew about it, and, and most of us probably agreed, so I could just, you know, say something vague and be like, oh, he's referring to that idea. And then let's put the joke about parenting at the end, you know, ha, huh, whatever. Um but that, like, that was not an expression, not a complete expression of what I meant, and which is it's not surprising to me that so many people heard that and misinterpreted it, because if they don't know what the heck I'm talking about, it, the words I said were not essentially what I meant. Uh, so did you, well, you saw Dr. Drang being angry about it, but what did you guys think I meant or think I was referring to, or did you know what I was referring to? I did not. I thought you were being genuine. I didn't think you were being, I thought you were being playfully snarky like you were you, you were trolling in in, in, a, in a not jerky way in a haha funny way you're gonna make me go off on a tangent about the the definition of trolling because I, <laughs> like I i have a fairly precise definition of trolling which is intentionally saying something you don't believe to get a rise out of people that was not what i was doing uh people use trolling to mean just like saying something that gets people angry but if you really believe it you're not trolling you are expressing your actual anyway forget about trolling um <laughs> So here's what I was referring to. I think I can sum it up reasonably concisely and then just like ramble a lot at the end until everyone's sick of it. This is this topic. Um, and I, I had to look this up because it was another thing that I just assume everybody knows, but they don't like a saying that I can remember seeing like for decades. I don't know where it came from. When I Googled for it, I got it attributed to some name, but not a, a timestamp. But one, the last place I can be sure I remember seeing it or the first place I can be sure I remember seeing it is on Usenet and signatures. 
like it was in everybody's dot sig kids ask your parent what a, what a dot sig is um <laughs> and it's this thing and you can tell me if you've heard this before if builders built buildings the way programmers write programs the first woodpecker that came along would destroy civilization have you heard that one before no very popular saying back in the early days of the internet in lots of dot sigs i'm sure it predates the internet because programming certainly does i found it credited to gerald weinberg but i don't know if that's accurate I only did five minutes of uh, looking that up because I'm not supposed to do any research. All right. So <laughs> good boy. So this is the uh, that saying what it's trying to get at is like the first premise behind the idea that I'm getting at is that software has more problems than other seemingly similar things like other forms of engineering and construction and stuff like that. That's what they're saying. It's like, well, the people who build buildings, if they were as crappy as programmers, woodpeckers would destroy civilization. That's that's idea number one. Like the, 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 there are always bugs in software and sometimes they're super really serious bugs not just minor ones and software even software written by the very best programmers the very best practitioners in the entire field those have big problems too right um and i think everyone can agree on that we all if you write software for a living you know bugs are a fact of life it's not as if oh when i get really good at programming i'll stop writing bugs that never it never ever happens <laughs> actually your bugs become harder to find right <laughs> and that the quality of software uh, I think we would all agree like that, that saying is funny about the woodpecker destroying civilization because there is not just a grain of truth, but a serious amount of truth behind that. They're like people in other professions that seem similar certainly seem a hell of a lot more competent. Like the average is better. And the, in programming in particular, there's not like no matter how good you are, you're never you're never going to achieve a level of competence that, you know, that's even close to the average of these other professions. All right. Uh so the second premise of, of behind the idea that I was referring to is that assuming you agree with the first one, this is another big chain of things. Like if you disagree with me at any point, they're not going to all connect. You have to kind of like, if you, you have to kind of follow the whole chain. And if you disagree at any point, well then, oh, well. So, uh, but if you agree with that first bit, the second bit is this, this, the first bit about software being crappier and the woodpecker thing. It's not because software developers are dumb or lazy. Um, like that is not because we haven't thought about programming. It's not because people haven't tried to figure out better ways we might be able to program. It's not because programming is super young. We've been doing this for decades. And something that I think most programmers and most other people would agree with is that this nature of software that is discussed that have been crappier than other things is because software is different than those other things, not because of any lack of effort or knowledge or skill or, eff or you know, because, because programmers are stupid or anything like that. We've had decades and decades of research and hard work, and they have not really led to any big reduction in sort of the number of bugs per line of code or whatever, whatever stat you want to put up. Like a programmer today versus a programmer writing something on punch cards error rate wise are probably pretty similar like and we've and it's not for lack of trying it's not like we well we've never really put any effort in trying to figure out how to write software better no we put a lot of effort into it and it's it seems i'm not going to say it's intractable but so far we haven't cracked it um and like the fred brooks things that i mentioned in the last show you know the mythical man month how adding manpower to a late project makes it later. That is not true of, you know, building a bridge. If you double your manpower, you can probably build a bridge faster or, you know, any, anything, any sort of more scalable physical endeavor or building a skyscraper. If you've got one guy building your skyscraper, boy, it's going to take forever. If you're running late, if you add more construction workers up to a point, obviously, I mean, uh, but like this, the mystical man month is famous because it's such a counterintuitive uh, finding for software in particular. And, you know, Fred Brooks again with no silver bullet, 
the, it, the uh, Mythical Man Month was 1975. No Civil War it was 1986. Uh, programming's been around since you know in in its current sort of modern form since the 50s, 60s, right? Um, so this, these are people trying to research what we can do to get better. No silver bullet was that we've looked into this and there doesn't seem to be anything we can do that will really make us better programmers by like an order of magnitude, uh, used in the correct sense for all the people who are pedantically correcting Casey about that. Um, and, and these two sort of seminal works in the, in the world, in the software field are, are fairly old. And I think most people accept them that like that, this this all comes to together as like programming is for some reason we're really crappy at it uh we can't figure out how to get that much better and it's not for lack of trying um and so that's that's where i'm coming from in this and there's there are lots of silly misinterpretations of what i said which are probably accurate if you were to look at the words but like should have been dismissed this is something when you're listening to somebody like give them the benefit of the doubt assume they're not like really dumb because it's always easy to say aha the exact words you said would only make sense if you meant you know mean this and that's a stupid idea instead of saying well you must not have meant the stupid idea you must have meant something else anyway it's not their fault it's my fault for saying the wrong thing but silly misinterpretations that i like to uh, dissuade people from now is one that programmers have the hardest profession in the world. That's obviously silly. Pretty much any other job in the universe is harder than, than programming, at least like physically and emotionally. Like it's very hard to think of a profession that is easier than programming. Maybe you can think of some that might be easier mentally, but that really depends on what kind of, uh, mental state you have. If you have the type of brain that eats itself, if it isn't given something to do, then actually being a checkout clerk is harder mentally than being a programmer. Uh, but, you know, any any job is harder physically. Almost all jobs are harder emotionally. Like, it's trivial to think of a harder job. So that's not what I meant. Software is the most complex thing in the world. Uh, that is obviously also silly. Uh, but there is, there's some nuance to that that I'll get to uh, in a bit. But, like, for, just to give an easy example, the human body is obviously more complicated than any software we will probably ever write. Uh, and people deal with the human body all the time in many forms, not just doctors and all that other stuff. Um, so... Here's what I did mean based on all those premises that I just described uh, about software being the most complex things made by human. Um, well, I guess one, one more sort of foundational thing that you have to understand and agree with me with is that software is written on top of an abstraction. Uh, and that abstraction is what we call the hardware. And it's an engineering task to make that hardware. So like some someone somewhere is responsible for making essentially a machine with, you know, chips or transistors or whatever that provides an abstraction that lets software work in the world of ones and zeros. It's the hardware's job to figure out the ones and zeros. You know, completely on, completely off, transistors, CPUs, clocks, you know, phase loops, power supplies, all that stuff, that's providing hardware. That is all to make an abstraction where it's like, okay, from this level up, it's ones and zeros. Um, sometimes that abstraction is leaky, to use Joel parlance, uh, but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about bugs. If only, if only most of our bugs were attributable to hardware problems where the ones and zeros break down. Like, that is not what causes most of our software bugs. The hardware, for the most part, does a really amazing job of maintaining that ones and zeros abstraction. And our software bugs are not caused by that abstraction leaking, are not caused by, oh, the one accidentally flipped to a zero, and that's what caused the bug of my... No. What caused the bug in your program was you writing bad code. There are hardware <laughs> bugs, but that's but that's not what we're talking about almost all the time. In fact, it's so novel when it's a hardware bug, it's like an exciting story, right? Whereas if you just make a software bug, that happens every day. Um, and above that ones and zeros layer, we human beings, we software people, are responsible for everything. And that's not to say that we have to write everything ourselves because you have libraries and OSs and frameworks. Like, we've built up this gigantic tower of stuff on top of those ones and zeros. But 
there is an expectation, and I think it's a founded expectation, that every single thing in this giant tower of crap that we've built is understandable to a programmer. The, the idea that software is, for the most part, pretty much nearly 100% knowable by humans. It doesn't mean they have it all in their head. It doesn't mean any human being fits the entire, like, knows every single thing that's happening in the program. But it is knowable and understandable. If you want to look up what's happening, you can find out. All the way down to getting, like, the manual for the CPU and figuring out what the machine code is and disassembling it. Like, it is knowable. Doesn't mean you know it, but it means, like, the only thing stopping you from figuring it out, like, if you have some super hard bug and you keep digging down, 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 eventually you're going to get down to ones and zeros, and those ones and zeros are knowable, you know, Casey would know, or any other done person who's done EE or any type of thing where you build a, a CPU up from logic gates. First you learn how a transistor works, then you learn how a logic gate works, and now you're into the world of ones and zeros, and you can very easily build a CPU from those logic gates and work your way up. It's knowable from top to bottom, every single piece, because we're building on top of these ones and zeros. Uh, now, I mentioned the human body before, which is way more complicated than any program, but humans don't create the human body, not in the way not in the way I'm about to describe. Obviously, we do, but not like assembling it a piece at <laughs> a time. So, so let's think about something like a bridge, right? A bridge is also more complicated than any program we will ever write. In fact, bridges are so complicated that we can't even like reason about them as they are. We have to use approximations and models and stuff like that to figure out whether they're going to work, right? Everything we do in, in that type of engineering has to be based on these models that are not reality, but they're hopefully close enough and we refine them and do everything like that because they're, they're fiendishly complicated. Um, that's another thing people think, oh, you know, you're saying computer programs are so complicated. Well, what about a bridge? Like a pencil is more complicated than a computer program uh, if you look at it at the atomic level. Um, so I think we can all agree that bridges are generally more reliable than software, like actual bridges. Like <laughs> bridges fall down, dropping the cars into the ocean much less often than software just totally craps the bed and does the equivalent. Uh and granted, we've been building bridges for a long time, but I don't think the head start really explains this because of, you know, the, the acceleration of technological advancement. So the, the analogy I would say is like programming is like having to assemble a bridge starting from subatomic particles, and you're not allowed to, to know the current laws of physics and use them as a reference. You have to invent everything, right? And so you'd, you'd build on the, the equivalent of libraries and frameworks, but the equivalents of library and frameworks in the bridge world would be like, well, what if there's a bug in the gravity library? <laughs> or what, what What if the guy who wrote the steel molecule framework left some corner case unchecked and at some point all the steel will turn to liquid at room temperature if a certain kind of car travels over the bridge? That's what we're doing in the world of software. And it's because the entire stack is both created by humans and knowable by humans. There is no sort of like, well, that's the way things work and we'll build models to, you know, to sort of uh, approximate what's going on. And using these heuristics, we can come up with something reliable. Every single piece of it from the top of the bottom is no noble and changeable by the programmers. And so these things, when I say software is the most complicated thing created by a human, I guess maybe more accurate to say software is the most complicated thing wholly created by a human because it is wholly artificial. Like once you get above the ones and zeros, all that ones and zero is us. And there are no rules except the rules we make. There is no gravity. There's no laws of physics. There's no... Uh, you know, physical properties. There's there's nothing. There is only what we make of it. Every single layer of that layer cake has bugs and nuances that 
are knowable to us, but are not known to us. And so, the, you know, the higher we build, the more chance there is that we don't understand something about cocoa that we think we understand. And, and this thing ends up being like unallocated in the time we tried to access it. Or uh, th there's a bug in the, the cocoa library and we, it's revealed in some very strange corner case. Like I'm not saying all bugs are due to bugs in frameworks and everything, but like that all the way, this turtles all the way down. It's all humans writing programs it, you know, that are knowable, but unknown. And that's the world we're living in. And that I think is describes the unique nature of software as being the most complicated thing that we make from top to bottom, because it is completely artificial. Uh, the human body is not knowable because it's way too complicated, but we're, we don't make it. We, you know, we're not responsible for it. No one expects you to know. Could you tell me what the electron in this atom and this person's eyeball is doing right now? Of course not. But if someone asks you, can you tell me when this value is going to change? A, you can actually tell them, and B, you should understand why that's happening. And if you had a bug related to that little electron, you should be able to figure it out. Uh, so I don't know if this is convincing as we as I keep piling on the assumptions. I think most people will agree that, so <laughs> that software is bad and that it's not bad because programmers are lazy. But I think most programmers will agree that the unique nature of software is essentially that it is really complicated in the realm of things that we make ourselves and every single part of us, every single part of it is created by us and in theory knowable by, knowable by us. We are sponsored this week by our <laughs> friends at Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code CRITICAL. Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and all the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. You can start with over 20 highly customizable templates that have won numerous design awards, and then you can modify those. You can inject code, you can use graphical adjustments, any possible thing you can think of to change these things with CSS or custom uh, field values and everything else, you can do all that stuff. Very, very easy to use. If you need any help with this, though, uh, they have an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with over 70 employees working full-time right here in New York City. Uh, Squarespace starts at just $8 a month, and it includes a free domain name if you sign up for a whole year up front. And every, every design not only is very customizable, but it also has a responsive mobile interface. So your site looks like your site on any device. Uh, you can connect to your social accounts, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, many more web and social services. Uh, they also have commerce functionality. You can build an entire e-commerce store right into your Squarespace site. Comes free with every plan, you know, no additional charge. Uh, so go to squarespace.com today, start a free trial, and that's a free trial with no credit card required, a genuine free trial. Um, start building your website. See if you like it. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code CRITICAL. Thanks a lot to Squarespace for sponsoring our show once again. I know you guys want to get off this topic, but I want to at least get both of your take on this realm, if, assuming you care. I don't, Casey. I, I, I sort of do. So as... As someone who claims to be an engineer, which is to say I went through an engineering program at, at a at a relatively large university, I I feel like I can be extremely snobby about uh, engineers versus non-engineers. For example, 
I think that Marco got an inferior education simply because his education was in computer science and not computer engineering. I wouldn't call it inferior. I would just say that as, as someone who also has an engineering degree, the one thing I think we can rightfully get to do is lord it over the people who took what we consider to be easier majors. Yes. Is it inferior education? I don't know. But is it is it harder to go through? In general, is it harder to go through an engineering degree than it is to go through a computer science degree? I would say in general for most people, yes. And so that's the one little thing that we can hold up with some tiny amount of pride. Please email them. <laughs> Please email us. Uh, furthermore, like you were saying earlier, the difference to me between computer engineering and computer science, all, all kidding aside, is that in principle, when John and I graduated, if not today, we should be able to, like John said, follow software at a high-level language like Objective-C or, or C-sharp or, or even Perl or PHP or whatever the case may be. We should be able to follow that all the way down to NAND gates and so, and, and so on and so forth within a pro or even transistors within a processor, just like John said. And I think what's interesting is I can see why people like Dr. Drang, who is a air quote traditional engineer, could be offended by John or me or anyone saying that the sort of thing we do is extremely complex or even the most complex. It's not the it, thing we do. It's the thing we create. Basically. Right, right. The thing we create. And so I can understand both sides of this. And, and to me, I think the thing that makes the most sense is that for us, by comparison, and John, you touched on this, our, our industry, our, our engineering discipline is so much younger, so much younger than most of these other disciplines. You could argue that mechanical engineering, for example, has been around for a really long time, hundreds of years at the very least, if not many, many, many more than that. And so because of that, uh, I think the, the reasonable argument for software being terrible and for us not being good at our jobs is that we're very, we as a, as a race, as, as a, as a race, I guess, yeah, are, are just very ignorant and, and we're kind of amateurs at this. And I, see, I, I don't buy that argument because of the accelerating pace of technology. You're right that it's so much newer than structural engineering, for example, but technology, if you like put any graph of like technological advancement after like the industrial revolution, like the rate of change is accelerating. So even though our thing came in much later in the timeline, it came in uh, after the bend in the hockey stick. So we've had the equivalent of millennia of technological advancement in software and yet we are not getting better at these things so right i i don't buy that like i think that contributes to it somewhat but i think i think the thing we're making because it is so wholly artificial and knowable and complicated that unique combination of factors like i i've spent a little while trying to think of something that has similar properties um i can think of science fiction things that have similar properties like uh you know building living beings from like you know, doing DNA programming or stuff like that, or building nanobots, maybe that are self rep like everything that I think of that is, that would be worse has some kind of place where we decide that it's not knowable anymore, like genetic algorithms or things where we're like, well, just let it go run off on its own. And we'll do some tiny simulation of kind of like what, uh, how life evolves, but we won't understand the reasoning or the, or the functioning. We'll just hope that the end product like works right. Can you think of one that has the, the combination of like, totally made by humans, also very complicated, uh, and no help from any pre-existing anything. You just start with, like, ones and zeros. Well, no, but you could argue that, you know, we're building on 
we're building on physics as well, just as much as a bridge builder is. Well, no, but I think there's that clean break. Like, yes, the engineers who build the hardware, yes, that's all physics, obviously. Like, that's, yeah, but I'm saying, like, there's a hard layer between, like, that's the hardware, and they do a great job with that because, like, it's they're, they're you know, doing approximations based on the natural world and, and laws that tend not to change and everything like that. But once we get above that, the ones and zeros, we draw a hard line there. and We say, look, if anything happens below that, that's not our problem. That's not our fault. That's not a software bug. And in practice, that's not where our, that's not where our problems are. Like, yeah, that does happen. Hardware fails, right? But nobody blames the software guys for that. People blame the software guys for all the other times something goes wrong, then the hardware is functioning perfectly fine. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's tough because, like I said, I see this from both sides. And I understand why Dr. Drang is offended, but I also pretty much, I know unsurprisingly, agree with everything you just said. So I don't know. We can move on from this, though. Uh, some, two, two suggestions in the chat room, though. One said complex math. Uh, yeah, that maybe that qualifies, although... Yeah, kind of, I don't know. I don't have enough math to, to analyze that, but... Well, math is a little bit different in that we're it, it's less built and more discovered you know yeah, it doesn't it doesn't do anything <laughs> well and, and, you know everything is like you know you're discovering properties that were already there or you're building you know you're building new ways of expressing things that are already there and proving things that already work like it's a little bit different in that you're not like you're not as much building up these whole systems of things that could be like three quarters wrong or you know would only work in you know eighty percent of the possible cases. Like usually, math is a little more uh, well grounded than that, and it's more provable and and you know kind of built more slowly over the years. So that it's it's a hundred percent provable. Like that's what defines it. Like but like it's not you're not building a little machine to do something. Like math is applicable to every machine that we make, of course. But like when you're doing math, you're like. You're not concerned. You're not trying to make a thing to do something. You're trying to, you know, sort of explore the nature of truth. The, the only real truth we have. So that should make the mathematicians happy. The other people suggested music and storytelling. Uh, lots of things that human do is like, oh, love is more complicated, right? But like, it's much harder to define a bug in storytelling and music and stuff like that. And those things, <laughs> although they're kind of executable where you play them, like they're not, the, the music doesn't like, the music isn't isn't meant to like if it makes one person sadder than another that's not a bug if one person finds it boring one person finds it amazing that's also not a bug like it's not yeah it it's difficult like again tons of things that people do are harder and more difficult more complicated than programming i say what what we make as programmers it, because it's so completely artificial and also so complex and there's no nothing nothing to stand it on like it is the world of ones and zeros that we have collectively built up uh, and it is, you know, a woodpecker would destroy it if, if it was made of wood. It doesn't. It, it doesn't take a woodpecker. It makes like a, a dust moat can go floating through in the wrong spot. And again, like all the steel turns to liquid, and when the yellow car runs over it. Anyway, we can move on. Please, Re really quick, uh, real time follow up. Firstly, it is math, not maths. You people that are uh, hailing from the British Empire are crazy, and I know we have too, but we, at least we got that right. Uh, and secondly, when I said race earlier, it's not about race. I meant the uh, human race slash the species of humans. Um, so before we get a thousand emails, actually, it's probably too late. So let's talk about uh, software methodologies and do a little follow-up on that because Marco isn't already bitter enough. Um, a lot of people wrote in and said, hey, you got Agile totally wrong. And to some degree, they were right. And I should say that Agile began as a manifesto. And that manifesto, I'll, I'll kind of get to in a second. Um, but it was more about here's the things we value and less about here's the steps that you should take in order to do these things. 
Um, and, and what I had talked about, and I think all of us had talked about was more, Hey, when you're, uh, if, when you're a soldier on the ground, so to speak, and I mean that very, very, uh, uh, figuratively, when you're, when you're a working developer, this is what Agile and Scrum tend to mean. And it tends to mean things like stand-ups and stories and points and so on and so forth. So th those of you who wrote in about Agile being more about an, a series of ideals rather than a series of steps, you're absolutely right. And I, and I should have specified that. Uh, additionally, a lot of people have written in and pointed to a post that was uh, very prescient and, and, and worked out. <laughs> the timing was great. A uh, post by Dave Thomas, uh, not the Wendy's guy, but uh, the Agile guy. And his post is, Agile is dead, long live agility. And the TLDR of that is, hey, Agile in the sense of a series of things that you need to do really is kind of BS. What Again, Agile is really about... Here's the values that we have. So he says, and I'm quoting from this article, look again at the four values. And these are the, this, this is the Agile manifesto that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we value individuals and interactions over processes and tools. We value so working software over comprehensive documentation. We value customer collaboration over contract negotiation. And we value responding to change over following a plan. So that's the ideal. That's what Agile really, really is. So Dave goes on to say, you know, hey, to do it, to, to prescribe stand-ups, to prescribe scrum, to prescribe stories, to, to, to prescribe any of that is really BS. So let's get back to the basics. And, and he says, here's how to do something in an agile fashion. What to do. Find out where you are. Take a small step towards your goal. Adjust your understanding based on what you learned and repeat. And here's how to do it. When faced with two or more alternatives that, that deliver roughly the same value, Take the path that makes future change easier. And I'm continuing to quote, and that's it. Those four lines in one practice encompass everything there is to know about effective software development. Of course, this involves a fair amount of thinking, and the basic loop is nested fractally inside itself many times as you focus on everything from variable naming to long-term delivery, but anyone who comes up with something bigger or more complex is just trying to sell you something. And to be honest, th this is pretty much right. This is true. And I stand by our last episode. I stand by all the things I said and on all the things that we said, because Agile and Scrum, as they are perceived today, boils down to those things. But if you really, really try to break it down to what is the, the genesis of all of this, it's really programming or developing with agility. And that's what Dave is talking about. Yeah, I read this thing too. And it, what it reminded me of is the the idea we see it played out many times that any idea, whether it's a reaction to previous ideas or an entirely novel new idea about how w someone might do something better, uh, inevitably falls victim to the sort of innate human desire for simple answers. Like, you know, Fred Brooks, no silver bullet. Everybody wants the silver bullet, right? And so if someone has an idea like Agile, where it's like, well, you know, a reaction to like the, the if you just take the opposite of all those points, like let's let's you know do a whole bunch of planning up front and take big steps instead of small steps. Let's let's get a full complete understanding of the problem before we start instead of like gaining that understanding incrementally. Like they are opposites of each other. In, in many ways, agile is a reaction to methodologies that have come before it, or you know, systems of working that have come before it. Uh, 
But once you put it out into the world, it does not take long for it to snowball into like the silver bullet people get their hands on it, and the books come out and the seminars and the courses and the consultants. And like that is inevitable with any idea. It doesn't mean the idea is wrong or dead or bad. Any idea you put out there, even any technology, will be absorbed into the gigantic culture of things that, that you know, sort of give people what they want. People want to know that you can hire a bunch of consultants. They'll swoop in, teach everyone in, in your organization how to do X in in the new way, whether it be like Six Sigma or all those things that your dad could tell you about from the IBM days and, you know, quality first and this, that, and the other. Like, the, oh, someone's always selling, here's a new way you're going to work. And it always gets perverted from what the original intention was, made into a caricature, and just becomes a money machine for consultants and other people. And I don't think that's any fault of the original ideas. And, and it's some, kind of a shame, but I think that's the natural life cycle of any idea about how people can do things better. Um, so Agile has traveled that path. And so, you know, we see technologies travel that path all the time as well. Uh, you know, every technology and every idea is somewhere along that continuum. And sometimes they wrap back around and get a second run at it and change. But uh, it doesn't make me think any more or less of Agile. I, I just think that uh, I feel, in fact, I feel a little bit more comfortable with Agile now, now that it has sort of run through its first kind of burst onto the scene. Oh, everyone has to do this. Actually, it's not that good. Backlash. Settling down into like, yeah, it's just one of those other ideas that's out there. It's in the mix. And now we can refer to it. Our collective knowledge of it is enough in sort of a vague sense to say that's our counterbalance against, you know, waterfall or whatever. Like it's it's another idea that's out there. Uh, and hopefully at this point, we all know it's not silver bullet anymore because we've gone through the backslash back backslash. Oh my god, <laughs> give it backlash! Nice. Yeah, just with an L, backlash. The backlash phase, and we're on to sort of the steady state. Now we're just waiting for whatever the next popular idea is. I mean, this, we do the same thing with extreme programming and pair programming. Like, I like that life cycle. I think it's valuable. I think just maybe like people who sort of come of age and that like whatever idea is the first idea like that that they see they might drink the kool-aid and think this is the one this is going to change everything but like if you've been through six or seven cycles of that you're like oh well that's just the next new popular idea uh <laughs> i'll wait for it to sort of settle down and then we'll get the value out of a test-driven development the whole nine yards one thing that always also tends to happen with these ideas or methodologies is like you know how when you when you try to explain something to someone who is really new at computers, you try to explain how to do something, and the way they remember to do it, you know, they don't remember save the document. They remember click on the file menu, click on save. You know, like they remember the steps before they before they can conceptualize the concept. You know, it's probably very similar to how people learn foreign languages. You know, from from like translating in your head every word to becoming fluent. It's a difference between following procedures and really understanding and internalizing it. And you know, Agile was seemingly started by by a group of people who really understood these concepts, who really deeply got them. And once it started becoming this this procedure and you know steps that you could follow and you know part of that was their manifesto part of it was what everyone else added afterwards, um, you know th then it, it it loses the understanding and it starts just becoming like a manual a series of steps a procedure, and it needs to be because in order to generalize that to a big organization and this is one of the differences that we talked about last week between small organizations and big organizations. Once you generalize this past a very small group, it has to be a procedure. It has to be codified. It has to become instructions. And inevitably, not everyone involved is going to be able to 
uh, rise above like the you know the letter of the law and figure and just and gain that, that complete understanding. And over enough time, I think that's what kind of ruins these things because that happens on a on a grand scale to almost everyone involved in it. People don't want to understand the philosophy. They just like just tell me what to do. Like, cause that they want, they want, they want the silver bullet. Like, it's not even just that they can't grasp it or like, they don't even want that. They're like, all right, so you've done all that thinking. Now tell me what to do. And it's like, no, you don't understand. It's like, you know, teach a man to fish and understanding the ideas that led me to these practices will be much more helpful to you than the practices themselves. And that's not something people want to want to hear. All right. Do we want to cover this question from Paul today or would we rather shelve that for another day? Um, I'll bring it up because I actually was, I'm the one I'm the one who added it. So, all right. So a guy named Paul uh, sent us a feedback form thing saying, "I'm a computer science professor, and I'm always curious what particular things that we teach turn out to be useful in the end." You had asked each other uh, last week what one thing you would take from software methodology. My question is, what are the one or two things from your CS education that you find the most useful when coding? Um, I mean, for me. I would say it's two things. I would say one is the operating systems course where we went all the way down into deep explanations and, and some, some playing with like low-level C code, but mostly like deep explanations of what an operating system does uh, in lots of, you know, lots of different problems, memory management, scheduling, uh, interrupt, stuff like that. Like, you know, the, the basics of what an OS is doing, um, that was very helpful just because it gives me a, a major understanding of things that we have to deal with every day, things like concurrency, things like threading and locking and everything like that. It it really helps the memory management. It really helps to know that, that sort of thing. Um, and the second thing for me is it, you know, and at my school, uh, you know, and I think this is common everywhere. There was, there were a couple of like intermediate level courses where you basically just did like a new programming language every week for something and so we got to explore all sorts of different languages briefly, shallowly, um, but we got you know ex- we got some experience and in the basic concepts of lots of different types of languages, and that's the kind of thing that in the real world it's harder to get because it's harder to justify or it's harder to find the time for. You know, it's easy to fall into the trap in the real world, which I'm certainly guilty of myself, of you know just going really deep on whatever you do at work and not really exploring lots of new things. Uh, and certainly there's so many new things coming out these days that it's almost impossible to explore them all. Um, but in in a comp sci education, they, they, at least in a good one, they kind of force you to. And so, like, I know the basics of languages that I've never used in the real world, like Lisp. Like, I know the basics of Lisp. I don't – if you sat me down in front of, you know, a Lisp code base and told me to start working on it, I would have some trouble. It would take me a while to get back into it. But, like, I know the basic concepts and, you know, stuff like that. Like, there's – that was a very a very valuable thing to me to to force me to experience uh, a lot of new concepts that you wouldn't really ever have time or reason to in the real world most of the time. I would say I actually exchanged a couple emails with uh, John because I didn't realize that this was going to be covered in the show, and I and I blamed John for adding it to the show notes. Little did I know it was you, Marco. But um, what I had said to him. Was the thing that I think I I value the most from my education, which is going to sound really ridiculous, but I stand by it, is learning what a pointer is. Because pretty much all of the development that I've done professionally in C++, in C Sharp, even in JavaScript and and certainly in Objective-C, all of that, all of it comes down to, at some point or another, 
truly understanding what a pointer is. And C-sharp is a great example because anytime you have a class, so if you don't have a struct and you don't have a primitive type, if you have a class, it is always, 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 always passed by reference. So whenever you're dealing with a class, you're always dealing with what is under the hood, a pointer. But I have dealt with so many C-sharp developers, many of whom I would actually classify as very good developers that don't that fundamentally do not understand that concept. And so in C sharp, when you pass a class instance into a method, or I, I should back up, when you pass anything into a method, you could say you can explicitly state that you would like to pass this by reference. So for example, if you have a string that you might manipulate in a method. .NET has Call time passed by reference, one of PHP's worst features that they finally removed recently? Yes. And .NET has it? Yes. Wow. And it has always had it. And so a better example would probably be like an integer. So I have an integer, and I call a method, and I'd like that method to be able to modify that integer. What I can do is I can say that I am passing this by reference, and thus I am I'm passing basically a pointer to that integer. Well, all classes, by default, are passed by reference. You know, you're just throwing pointers around. Well, so many times, the same way that you would say I am, I am specifically passing this integer by reference, I will see people use that same keyword, which happens to be ref, R-E-F. I will see people put ref in front of a class, which is redundant because you're always passing a class by reference. And so they clearly just fundamentally do not understand what's happening here. And I think that that's true not just of C-sharp. Clearly, it's true in C++. Clearly, it's true in Objective-C. And I would argue it's true of many, many, many other languages as well. Even, say, JavaScript. You have to understand what's going on under the hood. And so truly, honestly, understanding what a pointer is, I think, is the thing that I, I am most, not proud of, but most thankful for from my education. Right. And, you know, it helps to understand what's going on under the hood, even if you don't have to deal with it, because it lets you it lets you make better decisions up top. Like at, at the level you're working at, even if you're working at a very high level, even if you're working in JavaScript, uh, very high level, um, you you're still by knowing what actually is going on all the way, you know, at all the levels all the way down, it, it does enable you to make better decisions for all your high level coding. That's exactly right. And that's exactly the point I'm driving at. John? For me, I think, I mean, the easy ones, this is from a CS professor, so I think the easy ones are like just like the basic CS stuff you learn, like big O notation and algorithms and data structures. Like it's boring, but I think you have to learn it. Like that's that's the type of thing that if I did, if I wasn't in a formal class atmosphere, I probably wouldn't have gone off to learn that stuff on my own. But knowing it, like it's not like you need to know it every day and you can't just look it up, but just even just having known it, like, at this point, I could not implement a red black tree if you asked me to. But I know red black trees exist, have a vague idea of how they work, and if I were to look up an implementation, I would be like, "Oh yeah." Versus being like, "Red black tree? What the hell is that? What's a tree?" Or "Big O notation? What do those letters mean in the O?" I was like, that—that's the basics of a CS education. When I think of my CS courses, like that's—that's that's what you need to know, and like you build on that because if you don't have that foundation, everything just seems like, like a just like a like a product like you know, you learn a language and be like i'm learning this product you wouldn't you wouldn't see the generalities underneath it and you know so algorithms and data structures definitely were very useful um and i don't know if this was since i was a computer engineering and it's like you know electrical engineering with a few cs courses i don't remember if this was technically a cs course but the one i found the two i found most useful is 
One, the class where you build your CPU up from from logic gates, which I guess I had probably, is, probably isn't CS, but like that's like it is. That, that's like the course you have to have i mean like maybe in your class you didn't do like vlsi and like lay out the chip and like you know we didn't manufacture it but like you know doing the electronics design and everything like that but you know all, all the way up the stack like it helps to come from that perspective even though i'm never going to make my own cpu just because like look that the, the best way to prove that you understand it is to actually do it and then the other one is the courses I took where I had to do assembly programming. I don't even know if they make people do this anymore because, again, maybe this is an EE thing where I you're did. programming microcontrollers and stuff, but just thousands and thousands and thousands of lines in a, of assembly. And the only reason the thousands is because to do anything in assembly takes freaking thousands of lines because <laughs> it's assembly. Uh, you know, and that, and in that, in particular, one of the, the, one of the professors I remember who was, uh, doing my course where we were doing one of the microcontroller courses for assembly he was from a t- the telecom background and he was like i'm going to show you structured assembly which is what we use in the telecom industry to, to so we don't go insane and you know like it was like seeing the primordial ooze of c where it's like <laughs> we have to do everything in assembly but we know if you just do whatever the hell you want in assembly it's chaos and so we we've imposed some you know it, it's basically like this a system of conventions and and structures to allow you to approximate what you would write and see like you start to see the c because we took this assembly course after we had done c and you start to be like oh like i can see you basically are like a human compiler like when i write a conditional i always do it in this form and i always use these labels and this type of thing so then when i squint at someone's code i can if i squint just right that gigantic block of incomprehensible assembler turns into like an if and a while and a break and a continue you know like that that was very instructive but mostly just like the thousands of lines of assembly because there's no way to write thousands of lines in assembly and not understand pointers like by that point i understood them from c but I when I see someone who doesn't understand pointers, it's like, oh, I'll just teach you C and you'll get pointers. They probably won't. But if you make them understand assembly, they'll get it. hundred percent guaranteed. Yeah, I remember I, I did a course that out that required a lot of assembly, um, you know, like the MIPS assembly that everyone else had to do uh, around that time. And one of the hardest things with that, about that course, probably the hardest thing we had to do was uh, during the final exam. Uh, we were given a block of roughly, you know, one printed page or so of MIPS assembly uncommented, and the the question is, what does this do? Yeah, that's tough. And it was it was like it, I sat there for like a half hour, like basically like basically compiling it back to C in my head, and like you know making little notes, like all right, here's a little loop here, and and I think I think oh, what it ended up doing was like finding duplicate substrings or something like you know some kind of basic string processing thing, um, but it was it was surprisingly hard to figure that out. Well, that's why when you're looking at it, if you, if you actually literally have to translate it to see to understand it, it's kind of like translating the language into English, you know, so you can understand what it's <laughs> right. like. Eventually, eventually, like, that's what structured assembly does. It lets you start to look at the assembly and recognize, you know, the assembly chunks as, like, that's the equivalent of an if, but you don't have to translate it to see to see what it does because there's a regularization of it, you know. You don't have to, like, execute every line in your head and, like, visualize the registers in your head and how they're combining and keep track of all of them on a piece of paper so you can see, you know what I mean? Like... It starts to take on a, a form of its own, but so that's that's what I would say: data structures, algorithms, uh, assembly, and uh, CPU design. So basically, just take the whole curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hear a lot from people who say that CS degrees are useless slash inferior slash not giving them what they want because they're not being taught, you know, X language, whatever language is hot at this t- at the time, and. You know, nothing Nothing that we all just mentioned had a lot to do with a particular language that was in when we went to college. Um, you know, if if my college taught me a language, 
when I was there, they would have taught me Java. And in fact, in the intro, they do teach Java, but then they, they pretty quickly abandon it because it doesn't really, it's, you know, first, then they, then they go to C, and then it stops kind of mattering what language you use. And like for some of the later classes, you're allowed to just pick whatever language you want and do your projects in that language. Uh, and at the time I was there, I was very upset that they weren't teaching me Windows API programming, like, like .NET stuff, and which had, which had just come out about halfway through my college uh, career. And, and like, you know, I wasn't learning C++ during college and stuff like that. I was so mad. And what they told me at the time, which I'm sure everyone's heard from their ComSci professors, uh, is that it doesn't really – it's not really their job to teach you the language. And they're not really doing you a big favor if they spend a whole lot of time teaching you a particular language because chances are your education will go out of date much sooner if you spent half of it learning whatever language was popular at, at the time that you went to college. And uh, – and in reality, like all the stuff you do learn in college in a good CS department, all of the theoretical stuff and the basic principles and everything, there's really never a time in in the field where you where you get to learn that. Like, there's really not in the real world in the real world workforce. There aren't a lot of opportunities to sit down and you know learn big O notation and stuff like that. And uh, and, and so and a lot of times you don't even know what to look for. If, you know, if you didn't get that background, you don't even know like what to what to look up on Wikipedia or what what to look up on Linda or whatever else. And so, you know, part of, part of CS is teaching you things that are timeless and that are fundamentals. And it's hard to see that at the time that you're there, but once you're out for a while, you appreciate that, okay, well, yeah, now that I know the fundamentals, it isn't that hard to learn a new language when I have to at my job. I can learn a new language in, you know, a week or two and be pretty good at it after six months or a year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you, like you wouldn't want to have spent your entire CS education on a language that's going to be out of favor five years or ten years later. It's not like the languages go out of favor. It's just that, like in higher ed, like they look down their nose at like teaching you practical skills. It's like we're not a vocational school. Like this is not Apex Tech. You don't get your own tools. Like they, they want to teach you the concepts. And I, I never had a, a desire for them to try to teach me like any specific technology, and they certainly didn't. Uh, and also like, I kind of got the sense that a lot of these professors like were better mathematicians than they would ever be programmers, you know, especially in oh, the yeah. CS department. Like they're not programmers. Like you wouldn't want them teaching you anything because they would teach you the wrong things. Uh, but what you learn sort of, uh, through osmosis is in every class, like they just expect you to do, okay. And our exercises are going to be in, you know, 16 bit assembler or C plus plus or, you know, plain old C or Mathematica or like, it doesn't matter like what you're, you know, or MATLAB or like every, every teacher had some tool that you needed to use. Oh, and do this. This will let you work through whatever it is I'm teaching you. They'd be teaching you concepts and algorithms and stuff like that. And the tool you used to work through them, like every class was like, Oh, whatever this professor is like, whatever their hobby horse is, they want us to do everything in Java, final do everything in Java. And you learn that the programming language doesn't matter. Like, as you go like it's an incidental detail of you doing your actual job your actual job in school is like doing the assignment or understanding the concept and your actual job in real jobs is you know making the product or whatever and it's like well you know if, if you've never used java before and you take this class and this professor makes you do the exercises in java guess what you're going to learn enough java to do the exercises which will probably be actually end up being a lot of java surprisingly but that's not what they're teaching you in the class like you're just expected to be able to pick that up and that is good training for the real world because in the real world yeah you're just expected to pick it up like never done it before read about it buy a book figure it out because you need to do your job exactly all right our second sponsor this week is our friends once again at transporter at file transporter so 
file transport is a really cool device. Uh, it's basically a networked external hard drive uh, or a little little puck that you get that transforms one of your hard drives to a networked hard drive uh, that you own and control this hardware. So you have a hard drive sitting in your house or your office. You own it. You control it. It's all, all your data is sitting right there on that drive. Your data is not up in some cloud service. It isn't on some other company's servers. It is all right there on your hard drive. But it gives you features that are similar to what Dropbox offers. So it has, if you have more than one of these things, let's say you and, you and friend each have one, or you have one at home, one at work, or one at your parents' house or whatever, um, you can have them automatically sync and replicate to each other. So you can have either part or whole, so you could do like a shared folder, you could do like a, a backup automatically, like just sync, keeping these two drives entirely in sync, so you always have an offsite backup. Um, you know, the shared folder is great if you're collaborating with a team. Uh, if you want to share big files that maybe they maybe they don't fit on Dropbox, or maybe by some kind of regulatory compliance you can't have them on Dropbox, or you know maybe you just don't want to have your files on a cloud service, you know, for various privacy and security reasons. Um, so Transporter is this great device that allows you to do all these cool things. They also, in addition to the the sync and backup nature of these things. Uh, they also have uh, iOS apps and Mac apps that allow you to access the files from wherever you are. So your transporters could be sitting at your house, and you could be somewhere else, you know, in the next city or the next country over uh, with your iOS device or your Mac laptop or whatever the case may be, and you can access the files on your home transporter without doing any kind of crazy network setup. It does all that for you. You know, it bounces through the relay service to do the connection setup. But then the files are all still coming from your transporter, the, the hard drive sitting in your house. And so it's never going through a cloud service. It's never the data is never out of your control. Uh, all the transfers that go over the internet are all encrypted end to end. They don't have the keys. Your devices have the keys on both sides, and that's it. So really, there's there's quite a lot you can do with these things. Uh, it's they, their software is always getting better. They recently updated the Mac software to have even more uh, Dropbox like features. Now they can even do do things like automatically sync to and from your transporter and all your other devices. Automatically sync special folders such as your desktop or say your music folder or your pictures folder so these don't even have to be on you know in some special location or stored just on the transporter they will automatically sync these folders from your from your computer between your, all of your other computers which is really nice something that Dropbox can't even do so how do you get one of these things go to filetransporterstore.com and you can see these things are very reasonably priced the best thing about this there are no monthly fees you buy the hardware once up front and you own it, and then there's no monthly fees after that, which is a huge savings over cloud services, especially if you have a lot of data. So how do you get one of these things? This is great. One-time purchase, no monthly fees. The transporter sync, which is the little thing that you – it's like a little puck, and you plug in any USB hard drive you already have, and it has a network port on the other side, and it automatically does all these things for you. Uh, transporter sync is just $99. There's a 500-gig transporter with a built-in hard drive, 500 gigs, for $199. One terabyte for two forty nine and two terabytes for just three forty nine. And you can save an additional ten percent off of all those prices at filetransporterstore.com. Save an additional ten percent by using coupon code ATP. So go check it out, filetransporterstore.com. See how these things can really help you out. They, the, the feature set on these things is incredible, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger as they update the software and do all sorts of cool stuff. So thanks a lot to File Transporter for sponsoring our show once again. So, Marco, last episode, in a half-hearted attempt to derail me from my beloved software methodologies. Oh, that was full-hearted. Fair enough. You announced to the world, on the show, 
that you had received your trash can. I'm sorry, your new computer. You know, as a trash can, it's pretty crappy. Because you only have like that top inch or so of actual volume in there. And if you put a bag in there, then the fan can't blow the air out. So it's kind of a bad trash can. You know, it's typical, typical Apple overpriced. (laughs) Can you put one of those blow up men like they have in front of the car dealerships and they'll like wave his arms? (laughs) What's the line from Family Guy, like the crazy inflatable arm waving guy or whatever it is? Wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man. Somebody has to make one of those for the new Mac Pro. I'm sure, I'm sure that's going to happen. You know, leave it up to like uh, i don't know owc somebody's gonna make one of those uh but yeah i don't <laughs> uh yeah i mean what do you want to know it, it, so it, I, I gave a little quick thing at the end of last show during the after show and um you know basically there's not that much to talk about it's faster which i knew going into it from benchmarks um there is a certain nuance to the fasterness um so my previous mac pro I, I had gotten one of those uh, o- OWC Excelsior cards, which is basically uh, a PCI Express card with two little SSD, with two little serial ATA SSD cards in RAID zero controlled by the card, and then it shows up to the system as just one drive. Uh, so one of those, you know, cheapo soft RAID kind of things, I, I imagine. And so that, you know, there's a lot of layers of intricacy there, a lot of translation layers, a lot of a lot of components. Um, the new one, the SSD, is not only a higher grade, higher you know, higher speed flash, um, and presumably a more advanced controller than what these were using because it's just simply newer. Um, but also, the new SSD is PCI Express native, and I'm not entirely sure on on the uh, intricacies of how these work. But as far as I know, uh, that requires fewer levels of translation, fewer bridge and controller chips along the way. Um, so what it, what it is compared to the old Mac pro, it is simply more consistent and it feels like there are fewer bottlenecks and this is all very hard to measure. This might not hold up, you know, this might, this might be like audiophile cables like this, this might not hold up to, um, we should talk about Pano maybe, but uh, this, this, is that how you say Pano, Pono, Pano? I don't know. Um, I I thought it was pronounced piece of crap. Yeah. Yeah. We'll say that. So, um, how do you, how do you pronounce it in a triangle? Um, so it's, it's faster and it's faster. Not only, you know, like I've done a bunch of handbraking codes since I got it. And, uh, so, and they are, they're, you know, at least 50% faster, uh, than, you know, just, just on, on the frame rate that, that handbrake, uh, reports 50, I'd say 50% on similar things. And I think Geekbench bears that out. Um, so it is faster, but it also feels more consistent. It feels like there are fewer little bottlenecks, little hiccups here and there. The Excelsior, I'm not, I'm not sure I'd recommend it because, well, first of all, it's now outdated. Now you, you know, the era of PCI Express card uh, aftermarket cards is is pretty limited now. Um, but I'm not sure I'd recommend it simply because a you can now get one terabyte SSDs in two and a half inch bays for like. 500 bucks uh so so it's not as necessary and b um i always it always felt a little bit inconsistent in its performance and but that could just be in my head i don't know beyond that uh with the new one it's it's a lot quieter and and i i really it's a dramatic difference like i always thought the mac pro was quiet but man this is this is even quieter i would say it's quieter in most usage than my macbook pro and not you know not the MacBook Pro cranking its fan on high like it's quieter than the MacBook Pro at idle uh, to my ears but again that that could just be that that isn't a precise measurement I haven't taken although I do have an SPL meter I should try it but anyway um, <laughs> I got it for a review forever ago anyway uh, so 
overall, it's fantastic. There, there's not that much more to say, though. It's, it's just fantastic. Um, it is not, you know, four times faster CPU-wise than my old one, um, but it is faster, and it is really, really nice, and it looks freaking awesome. Um, and it'll look even better once I get one of those wavy hand guys on top. So, yeah, overall, I give it a thumbs up. What are you doing with your uh, old Mac Pro? Is that getting bequeathed to TIFF? And then if so, what's happening to TIFFs? Well, TIFF has the identical model. She actually got hers back in 2010 when it was new. Um, so she is – I'm going to – what I'm saying is tentatively I'm assuming that in roughly a year, maybe a little bit less than a year, uh, the next Mac Pro will be out that will have the Haswell EP chips. And that will, unlike this one, that will actually come with a – per clock performance gain so we should see a, a nice single threaded jump there the same way we do now with you know that that's that's the whole reason why the imax and macbook pros now are occasionally in some benchmarks faster than uh than the new mac pro in single threaded stuff because they have the haswell cores and they have a little bit more efficiency per clock on how much they can get done uh so those that has not come to the xeon line yet so that is not in the new mac pro but it will be in the new mac pro probably a year from now so I'm guessing a year from now, I buy one of those for myself, and then I give this one to Tiff to upgrade her because she really wants one because it's so much quieter and so much smaller, and that'll it, it, physically it'll help a lot in our office. Like the like I still have my old one sitting below my desk here, but it's going to having this little tiny cylinder on top of my desk instead of this tremendous tower below my desk is going to allow me to like totally rearrange the physical space here. And same thing on her side of the office. So. Um, there's a lot of gains that are that are not just you know the specs, but just the the physicality of it. You know the the size, the noise, the cables, stuff like that. So overall, uh, a plus. I'm one thing I noticed when I restored to it. So I I hadn't been doing disk clones recently, which I think is a mistake. I'm going to start doing that again. Um, I, I've been relying on a combination of Time Machine and online backup. And it, so I, so when I got this new one, I I did a restore from Time Machine over the network. And with, with hosted on the Synology box, so I don't have to have a desktop covered in hard drive enclosures. Uh, and Time Machine Restore worked great, except that certain things aren't backed up to Time Machine, and it's annoying. And I, I, it took me—I I'm, I'm, I still haven't quite figured out what overall has been excluded. Um, you know, the data's all there, the apps are all there, but like certain apps lost their preferences. Um, certain keychain things, although not all of the keychain, mysteriously, certain keychain things aren't there, and I had to re-enter some passwords and stuff. Um, certain apps, the, the biggest thing is like losing losing entire configurations of some apps, and I don't know why that is, um, but it was not a perfect clone, and so I so I I, I want to get back into the cloning business again, and uh, I haven't quite decided how to do that. I'd rather not have a desk with hard drive enclosures on it. So I'm thinking maybe of trying iSCSI with the Synology. Um, but iSCSI requires a kernel extension, and that's uncomfortable. So I I don't know. I, I'm actually curious to hear from listeners. Like, if you do iSCSI, um, does it, you know, is, is it a pain in the butt, basically? Like, with OS upgrades, is it a pain in the butt? Is it buggy? Is it weird? Well, why do you need to use iSCSI? Why don't you just do a super-duper clone to uh, a disk image on your Synology? I suppose I could do that, but then how do you restore from that? Same way. You just you would just you know, I guess you'd have to something to boot from, but then you just need to run super get get into a state where you can run super duper and then clone from the disk image back onto your drive. I mean, you you, you need like kind of an in betweeny drive to be like your your way station because you can't clone onto the drive that you're booted from. But that's not. I mean, 
that's not hard to do. You do that on a USB key, even like assuming you can boot from it. One thing I also thought about actually was uh, was just just getting a bus powered two and a half inch hard drive enclosure uh, with like a one terabyte disk in there for which which would cost substantially less than the iSCSI software for for Mac, um, and uh, and just like you know zip tie it to the bottom of my desk so I don't even see it. Um, but I'm not sure I wouldn't hear it. I'm assuming it could be put to sleep. You wouldn't hear it. I have a bus-powered one terabyte. It's even black, just like a Mac Pro. I was all ready to use it on a Mac Pro. It's <laughs> like the, disc, the drive goes to sleep. You would leave it unmounted most of the time, and you'll, you'll never hear it. Yeah, I think I think I might try that uh, first, because that's that's just so much easier. And then the other thing is, I, I'm uh, actually, one of the reasons I was thinking about trying iSCSI, but but I might also do the, um, the drive strapped to the desk method instead, um, is that uh, Backblaze does not back up network drives, and and they've made little hints here and there that they might consider adding them in the future, but it doesn't seem like they're uh, they're in a big rush to do that. So, and I, and I I mentioned in previous shows that the other options like uh, Crash Plan just don't work very well for me uh, with various issues. So, I would love to have I, I have this like four terabyte share on my Synology that is storing like all my large archive files. And I right now I use uh, Arc on the Mac to back that up over the network to Glacier, and I don't love this setup. Uh, I don't love that it's on Glacier and it's kind of hard for me to get to anything, um, but it's too big for S3 to be well priced. So I, I, I might, I don't know. I I might go back to uh, enclosures and just kind of like hide them under my desk somewhere so I can't see them and figure out ways of unmounting tricks so they don't hear them. So I want to give John a chance to interrogate you, but really quickly, you kind of haven't answered the question. So what is your old cheese grater doing? Just collecting dust? Well, actually, it has stopped collecting dust because the fans aren't running in it anymore, sucking dust through it. Uh, So so right now it it has paused its dust collection as well as all of of its other activities and is just sitting under my desk uh, in its old spot just because I have been too busy to uh, move it. I, I, I took a trip this past weekend, so I've been I've been very, very busy just organizing things and and then when i get back disorganizing things uh so uh i i will i'll let you know soon how that's going i had like i still haven't even rewired or unwired like i'm gonna this is gonna be one of those times i get to finally clean out all these old wires behind my desk and like take a bunch of new zip ties and re-zip tie everything together and all that stuff but uh, you should use those little velcro things they're better than zip ties I, I have some of those. I have about maybe 20 of those. Um, problem is that they're big, they don't hold very tightly, and they themselves collect tons of dust. What's big about them? They're like they're like a centimeter wide at the widest. Yeah, compared to a zip tie, that's pretty big. I know, but it's like you're spreading the weight. I, I found they hold very well. I just I redid the back of my TV when I got all the TV and the new TiVo and everything, and I use those Velcro things, and I was skeptical because they look like they're crap, but uh, they worked really well, and not a single one has come off now. You just have to know how to wrap them around enough times. And I love the fact that I can undo them, read them with zip ties. It's like I can get in there with a needle and undo it, but I really don't want to. So you just end up cutting them, and that's dangerous. So I don't know. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a convert to the uh, to the Velcro things. Maybe it depends on the brand. I don't even remember what I got. It was just whatever. It was highly rated on Amazon. They were super cheap, though. Yeah, I got a bag of 1,000 zip ties uh, in 2004. And I have, I still have like a quarter of the bag left. So I don't like, I just cut them whenever I need to change them and it's just, it's no big deal. Aren't you afraid you're going to accidentally cut the cables? No, you like, you hook the scissor under it in such a way that it, it can't cut the cable. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, it just seems risky <laughs> to me. So for now it's just sitting there, but are you eventually offloading your Mac Pro onto Dan or, or is it going to be a charity case? You're going to give it to me? I thought you hated desktops. 
Oh, God, I don't want a Mac Pro. Are you kidding me? That's stupid. Exactly. Especially, who would want an old one? I desperately need an SSD. <laughs> hint, 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 hint. My new video card is awesome, but, like, oh, the spinning <laughs> discs on this Mac Pro, like, just... Uh, it's becoming unbearable. If you want the Excelsior, I will. I'll give it to you for a very, very good price because I just want to get rid of it because I I have no use for it. Well, you're not you're not selling it very well, saying it's got weird, inconsistent performance and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Like, but <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like, I just I I have no idea how to use that. Like, for me to for me if I wanted to keep using that, I would have to buy a Thunderbolt to PCI Express enclosure, which is like three hundred bucks. Oh yeah, no, you can't use it. A new hard drive, a new SSD of the same size is five hundred bucks. And is going to be probably faster because it's newer. Yeah. So I I don't know. I'm not like, and that's the problem. Like, if if the new two and a half inch drive is five hundred bucks, uh, what can I really sell this one for? You know, I mean this this one's this one might be faster because it's in the slot, but I don't know. Anyway, this is all boring. So I uh, let's move on. But yeah, basically it's awesome. Um, there's not that much to say about it yet. Like, you know, there's, I don't have any software as far as I know that takes advantage of the, of the dual GPUs to do computation and stuff like that. So it really isn't that interesting yet, but, uh, right now it's just a really awesome, very fast, extremely quiet, uh, Xeon workstation, which is exactly what I wanted. And so I'm very happy. John, no questions. I was just going to say, I mean, Mark already touched on this, but it's kind of a shame that machine is so expensive because the the sort of life change that it brings about is going to be such that, like, once you've banished all the cheese graters from your house and you've had these little cylinders for a while, you're going to, like, see a cheese grater at someone else's place or something and just be like, do you believe we used to have those things under our desks? <laughs> like, they're the size of, like, dehumidifiers. Like, it's going to seem, it's going to seem absurd just because it's such a, you know you don't realize how small these things are until you see them in person. Like in the picture, one of the best pictures online was showing it next to the G4 cube, which was like, Oh my God, they fit the whole computer into a cube. The new Mac pro is smaller. Like it's, it's skinnier. It's a similar height. It's just, it's, uh, it's an unbelievable change in the size of things that we're forced to live with. It really got people interested in the Mac pro again, that who weren't interested for years. I mean, the Mac pro is for the first time, Ever it was even even when the cheese grater one first came out in 2006, uh, it was never like a hot item. Now this new one is a hot item. They made it cool again, and that's almost almost completely because of physical you know superficial things. But that matters. Yeah, I mean that's that's part of the the product. Right, it matters to innovation. You know, Phil Schiller's ass can't innovate anymore. My ass. <laughs> Like it, it matters to all these things, and and it got people interested in this in this relatively boring, out of reach product again, and that's really great. Uh, I mean, that's, it makes people wish. It makes me wish for you know the X Mac Dream always keeping coming back. It's like, damn, if it only wasn't so darn expensive. Like, can you put one GPU instead of two? Can you use a cheaper chip? Like, I mean, I guess they kind of can, and that's not the point of the product. But you're like that form factor is so great that. If you just take that form factor and change the guts, keep the cooling system and everything, but just change the insides to be, hell, even iMac caliber insides just to be able to get like a, a separate screen or like a better GPU than you can put in an iMac because you'd have a desktop GPU in there. And Apple will never do this, but it reignites those fantasies of like, I love that form factor so much. Personal computers should never need to be bigger than that. In fact, they don't need to be as proved by the amazing power that's in this one. So why is it that... The only way I can get one of those is to, you know, get two giant GPUs that I'm never going to use in a super expensive server chip. 
Uh, to be fair, the the four and six core chips are actually pretty competitively priced. The eight and twelve cores are ridiculous, but the the four and the pricing on the four and six is actually pretty good and not that far above regular Intel consumer CPU pricing. Oh, it's not Apple's fault. I mean, it's just that like, you know they're expensive chips, and the dual GPUs is Apple's fault. Like you can't. What if I just want one? Tough, tough luck. You know. Yeah. Exactly. So you know the it, but overall it's it, and even you said like the lifestyle thing like so I for for large expensive things like this where it's practical to I I keep the boxes around the shipping boxes and, and the internal boxes so that when I go to sell them three to five years or whatever down the line I can put them back in their box and it's easier and it saves some money and everything else and I know it's relatively safe um, so in my basement I have two giant Mac Pro boxes from the from mine and Tiff's old ones and. Uh, and it's just ridiculous. And this one, the box is like the size of a bookshelf speaker. Like it's like even that is an improvement. Uh, just like you know, there's there's like things like that, that you don't even think about, but it, it all adds up. I think about it because I have a indeterminate but much larger than two number of those cheese grater boxes <laughs> in my attic, <laughs> and they're ridiculous. Like they're massive. Yes. They did get smaller over time, believe it or not, but only slightly. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I when I sold my old one to Dan Benjamin, uh, it cost me a, over a hundred dollars to ship it. Like that's how big these boxes are and how heavy they are. I mean, it's just, just incredible. So anyway, yeah, talk to me. I'll, I'll give you this one to you. Give this one to you for a good price. Uh, anyway, we are also sponsored this week. Our final sponsor before we move on to more Mac Pro to find discussion. Uh, our final sponsor this week is Ting. Once again, Ting is mobile that makes sense. There are no BS, simple to use mobile service provider from the people at Two Cows, the company behind Hover. Uh, Ting, which is a reseller of the Sprint network in the U.S., uh, they have great rates. And there's no contracts or early termination fees. You own your device outright from the start. They have a true pay-for-what-you-use pricing model. So you pay a base price of $6 per month per device, and then you're automatically billed for the actual amount of minutes, messages, and megabytes that you use each month above that. Um, so this is great for if you have fluctuating usage, which, let's face it, most of us do. Uh, let's say you have like 100 megs of usage one month in data. The next month you go traveling and you use, use a gig doesn't matter you, you pay your little bucket of rates for those two rates you don't have to remember to like call ahead and raise your cap and then call ahead and then you know do it again when you get back and lower it back down so you don't get a build next month for the high level just automatically you get you get billed for what you actually use each month and no more uh and their prices are now even lower so 500 gigs uh, sorry 500 megs of data is just 12 bucks and uh, two gigs is just 29 uh, so go to atp.ting.com and check out their savings calculator. Uh, you can see how much you can save by entering in your last few months of usage from your cell phone. And then they will, sh- they will show you this cool graph and they'll say, all right, well, if you continue, you know, your average looks like it's about this. Uh, most months, you're going to save X per month roughly with us. And then over time, you can see, all right, well, after a year, you've saved this much. You know, you will save, you know, you'll have to buy your device up front, but then you'll, you'll pay that off in, say, six months or whatever. Uh, great thing, the savings calculator on atp.ting.com. Um, they will also pay your early termination fee up to 25% back in service credit, up to $75. Uh, so if you have an early termination fee to get, to get out of your existing carrier, uh, that's a really nice little help uh, there for you. And also, you know, with Ting, there are no contracts, there are no service fees, there are no termination fees, so that'll be the last one you ever have to pay, right? So like Hover, Ting has great customer support. They have a no-hold, no-wait phone support policy, so you can call them. Anytime between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern, and a human being picks up the phone who's able to help you. So go to atp.ting.com. Now, here's some big news. For a while, there was this kind of elephant in the room. Uh, what about the iPhone? 
You know, for a while, Ting didn't didn't support the iPhone. They couldn't get it on. Um, a couple months ago, they finally got. Um, so they're as I said, they're on the Sprint network. So uh, if you get an iPhone four or an iPhone four S that is for the Sprint network, and you can get it on eBay, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it on Glide, newer used, whatever whatever the case may be, uh, any compatible Sprint device. So the iPhone four and four S have been compatible for a few months now. Big news, they just added the iPhone 5. So get your hands on a Sprint iPhone 5 through them or anyone else, and you can use that on Ting as well. Once again, check them out, atp.ting.com, and thanks a lot for sponsoring the show. All right, so my dad listens to this show, and my dad is a bit of Uh-oh. an amateur stereophile, audiophile, whatever you want to call him. And, and he, <laughs> we could, well, I know we can go down the road of, oh, cables don't matter, et cetera, et cetera. But he's been giving me a hard time for a while because John had mentioned in the past that he is either seeking or had found a new AV receiver. And my dad had has also just found a new AV receiver, and I don't recall what it was. But regardless, was very interested to hear how John landed or is intending to land on the AV receiver of his choice. And my, my father, whom I love dearly, has been giving me grief every week, asking when we're going to get to this topic. So, Dad, this one's for you. John, tell me about AV receivers. Yeah, the only reason I was even looking for an AV receiver is because, as I think I complained about when I was first talking about my TV, is that the number of HDMI ports on TVs seems to be going down, even on the super expensive ones. So my new fancy TV had uh, three HDMI inputs, I think, compared to like four or five of my old one. I don't remember the exact numbers, but anyway, less. And I I had devices. I didn't have any place to plug them in. So I needed some kind of solution. Uh, And AV receiver is one possible solution, but before that, I tried to just get an HDMI switch. And I didn't actually buy any because every time I read reviews of them, there was always like a good 10, 15, 25% horror stories about how terrible they were. Every single one, like didn't matter the brand or whatever. The only ones I didn't see horror story reviews were, were super high end, like installed by value added reseller, kind of $1,000 boxes. And those didn't have any better reviews because they didn't have any reviews because sites like that don't have a place <laughs> where people can leave reviews. And I wasn't going to look, that's as much running a receiver. So I resigned myself to getting a receiver. Um, as far as your dad is concerned, I don't think what I have to say will be useful because and this is just true in general, when people ask, like, what kind of X should I buy? The more you know about a topic, the more you're just inclined to say, well, it depends on your needs or whatever. <laughs> like the, like, but that's so true because, like, for AV receivers, when I'm reading product reviews, I know what I want. Like, I'm basically getting the world's fanciest HDMI switcher. And I have specific features that are <laughs> specific features that are super important to me but that may not be important at all to other people. And on the reverse, the features that most AV receiver reviews talk about, what kind of speakers they can power, how clean an audio signal they get, all that, all that I don't care about because I'm going to have crappy speakers. <laughs> They're not going to sound good. I'm not buying this thing as a sound system. I don't care about internet radio. I don't care about music playback. All these things that are you know, maybe the primary most important features of a lot of people who are buying AV receivers. So the one that I bought is probably not important because my needs are so weird. Like what I wanted was a huge number of HDMI ports, the ability to switch the HDMI ports uh, without turning the device on. I mean, like on, on. I know they're always, you know, on, but you know what I mean? Like without having anything powered on all the time because I didn't want to be constantly turning it on and off. Um, and uh, the ability to hook up all the devices I had. Like I have, I have component video devices like the 
PlayStation 2 and, and my Wii and the GameCube and I have composite input devices, the, the GameCube. I forget if I have composite or component for that. But anyway, like I have all sorts of legacy devices that, once again, on the back of my new TV, there's no place to plug them in because there's, you know, there's one component video port, no composite video port, you know, all that stuff. I wanted to play stuff. Say, I'm getting a gigantic receiver box that's got a million plugs on the back of it. I might as well find one that fits all my devices, that has tons of HDMI inputs, that can switch in standby mode. Uh, and I didn't care about almost anything else. So I don't think the one I ended up with is particularly useful. I ended up with a Yamaha, what is it? RXV 673. I should have looked this up, but anyway, something like that. <laughs> um, and that's, that even the particular model number is interesting because when I was looking through the reviews, and I spent a long time reading reviews about this, again, ignoring almost everything that's important in the reviews, looking at the few features that I'm interested in, narrowing it down, there's a newer version of this Yamaha receiver with a slightly higher number, like 675 instead of 673. Uh, but the features they added, I don't care about any of them. And all the features that I do care about are identical. Um, and there's this thing, even so, there's this thing, and I, I associated with sort of, I wrote in the notes, a programmer's bias towards new models. Like, if you write software for a living <laughs> or if you're a software aficionado, I, I mean, maybe it's just me, I find myself strangely compelled. Like, I have to get the new version of everything. And the reason why is because it's like empathy. Like, I can empathize with the programmer. You know how good you feel when you deleted that massive amount of code that's no longer needed and replaced it with simpler code, even though it does exactly the same thing, and even though you may have actually introduced a bug because the old code worked, but you feel so much better about, oh, God, I can't believe people are out there using my old version. This new version, I deleted, like, 700 lines of code, and it's just so much cleaner, and I got rid of this flag variable, and this, you know, like, you just feel so good about it, and you're like, please, stop running. I can't even believe people are even executing that old program it was so terrible you have to be running the new one right so when someone releases a new version of a piece of software i feel that way like i feel that way for them i feel like of course you got to get the new version like i can only imagine how much better this new version must be even if it looks functionally identical and they didn't add a single feature and it's the same speed i just know it's got to be better in the code like i know that feeling well, I have the same feeling about like, well, if this is 673 and 675, of course you're going to get the 675. Like, why would you get the 673? That's crazy. I'm sure they fixed tons of bugs in the 675 and maybe they consolidated some chips and it puts out less heat. And like, you come up with all these elaborate fantasy scenarios about why the 675 should be better. Uh, but I, I was good this time and I made myself say, no, you don't care about like that they added better Pandora streaming or some other crazy thing where you can plug in an <laughs> iPad and like, I'm not going to use those features. And the 673 was like a hundred bucks less than Amazon. Um, so I bought the, like, basically last year's model of a receiver, uh, and it does all the things that it said it would do. Now, the the reason I put this thing in here is because despite the fact that I was able to shop based on features and stuff, one of the things that people don't talk about in their reviews for the most part is how terrible all AV receivers are in terms of their user interface and how they, you know, connect together. And I was thinking about... Like, it's not that hard. If if I if a programmer was to design an AV receiver, like when I conceptualize it, and in fact, in a lot of the manuals, you'll find a big, like, truth table or grid where it's like, if input is from this device, and video input is from this device, and audio input is in that device, then the audio output can be on this output. And, like, there's, there's like a truth table of a matrix of, given these inputs and these outputs, what combinations are valid and what combinations aren't. And right away, that's kind of frustrating. I'm sure there are physical, you know, limitations of like, well, if you have a video coming in and compositing, you don't have something that converts it, you can't output that video to your television and HDMI unless you have a chip to do that. And, all, you know, I understand the limitations that define it, but ideally you'd want, look, I can take any video source, any audio source and put them, any any inputs and send them out on any outputs, any combination of. Obviously, that's, you know, again, optimistic. There's 
hardware constraints that stop from you doing that, but that's what you'd like as the ideal. But within the realm of the things that you can do, these inputs on those outputs, like whatever's valid, and and all the other settings you can have, you know, there's a bazillion settings, the balance of the speakers and the surround decoding mode and if you're sending it out to the second zone and all like there's a million features on these a receivers but if you visualize all those all those settings the bare minimum that i think any programmer would do is say give me an ability to save all of the current settings under a name and let me select that name and have it change all those settings to that name and i've never found a receiver that even does that they all want to be like well when you save the setting what you're really saying is when you change this input we implicitly change to that but you only have one set of speaker level settings or maybe you have two of those but that's a separate scene but the scene doesn't affect the inputs and the inputs don't affect the surround mode and this the the dialogue delay is independently adjustable and it's not tied to the input it's like it's it's the most byzantine mess of crap and it's harder i feel like it's harder for them to do that if, like the, the the stupid simple thing is every single setting under a name Whatever the current state of the machine is right now, save that under your name. And then anytime I go back to that name, set every single setting in the entire machine back to this. That's the stupidest. A better one would be to have subsets. Here's one set for, for speaker levels, you know. Here's one set for input combinations. Here's one set for, like, and then you could combine those sets, like a nested type of thing. But I'm not even going to talk about that. Just, like, the st- stupidest thing a programmer could think of is I have a billion settings. There's only certain valid states. Set every setting the way you want it. Save it all under a name. And none of them do that. So... You're you're basically resigned to say, look, I basically just have to choose one set of speaker levels because this this thing does not have a choice of a, a way to change speaker levels based on inputs, or if it does, it's, it conflicts with some other feature. So I have to resign myself to just pick a good compromise there because I'm never going to go into these menus and like turn up the center talent just a little bit when that's on this button because it's just too cumbersome. So I'm just going to have to find a happy medium. And then for these other features, I know these are tied to a preset, but when I change this preset, I have to remember to change that other thing because that other thing doesn't follow it with it. And when I'm not running through the Blu-ray player, but the sound is coming back from the TV, I don't want it to come back on the audio return channel because then it's only two channel because of some insane reason so i have to take the optical output but then i have to put the audio input to be av4 but that's only when i'm going through the speakers and it's like the amount of thing basically bottom line is it gets to the point where i can work it but anyone else in my family tries to use the television it's too complicated and no a single learning remote won't solve all this because of the timing delays and how long it takes to turn things on and off and it gets into weird states and you really want to disable HDMI control or HEC or VieraCast or whatever the hell they call that, that thing where the, uh, they have a million different names for it, where your devices control each other or HDMI. Cause that just adds more problems to the mix and your best bet is just turn that off. So you have a fighting chance of managing it. So in general, I think I picked the right receiver for me, probably not the right receiver for everybody. And everybody who makes receivers should just be, I'm not going to say taken out and shot, but let's just say given a stern talking to, about <laughs> what the power of software could do to help them. Because I feel like they're trying to help. They're trying to be like, it can be like you're in an opera hall and this, and it's like, just let's just start from the basics. Save every single setting under a single name. That interface sucks, but it's still better than what you have now. And then work your way up from there. You know, what you're describing is, almost sounds like you want the Apple approach to a, a receiver. And please don't email me because I haven't thought this through because I didn't do any research. It would be a new category. It would be a new category, though. And I, to be honest, I don't think it's really in Apple's interest to do this sort of thing. But but uh, maybe we need like a nest, you know, a bunch of ex-Apple people or just smart people. It doesn't even have to be ex-Apple to come in and say, you know what, here's a receiver done right. And we will we will be an omnivore and consume all these different inputs and give you 
one or perhaps more than one, for whatever reason, output that makes sense. Well, but but they would never provide what I'm asking for, which is let me change every single feature independently and save them as a set because that's a terrible interface for most people. But um, but like that, they would never do that. They would just say we've ch- we've decided on all the settings for you, and you don't have to change them, which is fine for what you want. But my big complaint is they give you these settings, but then they're like. Some of them are global, some of them are semi-local, some of them are local only, and when you save a preset, like, you're saving some weird subset of that, and it's just, it's terrible. So when are you making your own AV receiver, then? I mean, like, that's, that's what I keep thinking about. It's like, it's, I would, I would, <laughs> really? be, I would be okay, well, no, no, I, like, in terms of, uh, fine, people are bad at software, like, we're also used to, you know, car makers, and everyone who's not good at software, and the interfaces are ugly, and they look like, they used to look like MS-DOS, or they used to be like, they were excited when they even had on-screen controls, they used to just be buttons and everything, but it's like, isn't it easier to do it the dumb way? Like, it's almost, it's almost like they're, I mean, it's it's the CES thing, ever. Worst, worst products through software, like, it, the easier to implement solution is still insanely unfriendly, but it's still so much better than what they're offering because there's just no way any regular person is going to understand the, even with that giant table of valid combinations of input and outputs, they don't explain like what settings are linked to each other, which settings can be changed independently and which like you'd have to send them the source code for like to figure out like when I change this and save this under this setting, but I change to a different setting, which settings change when I change settings and which settings stay the same. And it does it depend on what those settings are and what things are turned on at the time or like, I, it seems like the, the stupidest thing you could possibly think of would be better than what we have now. Uh, and then working your way up. And when I, when I think about like Nest or Apple, like Nest is trying to not have you, you know, it, the Nest thing is like, all people know how to do is turn the dial hotter when they're hot, or when they're cold and colder when they're hot. And that's all we should expect them to do. And we'll do the right thing, which is a noble goal. And it's good, but I don't want that at my receiver. I just, at the bare minimum, I want, let me, you have a million settings. Some of them are valid. Some of them, some combinations are valid. Some aren't. Try to make everything valid as possible. I don't want to say that. Well, you have input on HDMI one. You can only output over HDMI three. Why? Why? Well, there's a hardware reason. I'm sure there is, but like my ideal device would be a, a the most complete matrix possible for inputs and outputs. Put whatever chips in there. You have to do it. Every option configurable and just let me save all those options off into a set. Because then you'd spend three days setting it up make all your presets and you'd be done now it's like always a mystery of like oh which settings do i have to change manually after changing this thing yeah i'm i'm really glad that so far i've i've made decisions and i've i've kind of accidentally fallen into limitations that have prevented me from ever actually needing a receiver uh and and i've intentionally kept it that way because I have many of the same concerns that you did before getting one uh, of trying to avoid this world of complexity. And and I think the result of you getting one has confirmed that those concerns were valid <laughs> and warranted. Um, and, you know, like it sucks that TVs don't have more inputs. And the reason TVs don't have more inputs is because, I guess, I assume, uh, because most people who would fill all the inputs on a TV and need more probably also have a receiver because it's like the thing to get to advance your setup to the next level. Um, but to not have that device would be so much better in so many other ways. Like, and I'm one of those weirdos, like I don't even have surround sound. I'm very, very happy with stereo sound. I'm like, I, I, I had for a while in college, I, I got the speaker set off of eBay. That was a pretty suspicious description. It sounded like it fell off a truck. Um, I didn't really pick it up at the time, but like thinking back on it, I was like, mm, wait a minute. <laughs> but anyway, so 
I, I had this like integrated powered speaker set from Sony that like just one of the speakers contained all the amplification for the other ones, and uh, and it was a 5.1 set. And for the first couple of years of college, I actually brought all 5.1 speakers with me, and uh, it sucked, and it was a pain, and I had all these wires everywhere, and then I just eventually stopped bringing the center and the rears and just brought the left and the right and just put it in stereo mode and left it there. And I realized that once I didn't have surround sound, I didn't miss it at all. Like, it was so unimportant to me for for what I actually used and what I actually cared about. Uh, It didn't matter one bit that I didn't have surround, that I just had left and right. And so I was able to keep the setup simpler that whole time. And and ever ever since then, I kept kept the setup very simple and just have never had surround sound again because it just turned out to be this gimmick that I don't actually care about. Um, So in the same way, I wonder, like, could you, John... Like, could you give up any of these inputs, or could you find some other solution to remove your need for this receiver? Well, I was in the same camp as you for the longest time, because I care less about sound than I do about picture. That's why I have a super expensive, relative to what normal people buy, super expensive TV, and, you know, no speakers at all for the longest time. And I loved having all the inputs on my television, because it did make it simple enough for anybody in my family to use it. All my devices were connected. They were all labeled. You could pick any of my game consoles by name and switch to the input, and, you you know, it was straightforward. There wasn't three boxes you had to coordinate. Uh, But once the TVs came with fewer inputs, I'd say, well, that ship has sailed. And so, if I have to get a receiver anyway, now is the time. And this is basically the first, you know, surround, you know, 5.1 system that I had. Now is the time for me to do that. Previously, I had an a, a, an old analog receiver in there, but I only had two speakers hooked up, though, kind of like you. And I would almost never use them because they were terrible speakers. So basically, I bought the cheapest possible and the smallest possible 5.1 speakers because my room is not set up for 5.1. It's really hard to even find a place to put the speakers and everything. But, you know, I did the research and I found what is the best cheap 5.1 system you can get and i didn't think i would ever use it which is why like i figured i'm going to get this thing i better get the speakers anyway but i don't want to spend a lot of money well they'll be off all the time i assume just like my old speakers um and that's why i wanted a receiver that i could change the inputs on without turning it on and it can it works great like you can you know i can i can change inputs without having to turn the big thing on it all lights up and you gotta switch like it, the features that i picked for it work great but i find myself now to my own surprise watching almost all of my television in 5.1, because pretty much every program I want is 5.1. Like, True Detective is 5.1, Netflix streams 5.1, Apple TV 5.1, movies, you know, horse Blu-rays and stuff like that. They all put out 5.1, and my speakers, again, are crappy, uh, but the speakers in flat panel televisions are super crappy. So just having, like, reasonable bass and a center channel, those are the two biggies. Forget about surround. Like, very few things actually use the back channels that much anyway, but just having... Real low-end sound, which you can't get from flat panel speakers inside the stupid TV, and a center channel so the dialogue can be understandable and loud enough without, like, you know, blasting it loud enough to wake up the kids. I am a convert to watching, even on terrible 5.1 speakers, watching television and movies like that uh, versus watching them through the the other thing. So that's that's kind of been, like, the big surprise for me that uh, even though I am so much more visually oriented than uh, auditorially or whatever, audio-oriented... Uh, I find myself using this around uh, a lot more than I could. And I guess it goes a long way. You know, the fact that the speakers I got, yes, they're terrible in the grand scheme of things, but they're way better than like the crappy stereo speakers I have. Like there's a couple hundred, I've spent a couple hundred bucks on speakers, but basically pretty much the same price as the receiver itself on speakers, which anyone who knows anything about audio would say, no, actually you should spend way more money on speakers than you should on the receiver because they're much more important. But you know, again, I didn't care. So it, it worked out well for me. I'm very happy with the receiver I got. I'm very glad I didn't buy the Sony receiver that I was looking at that has the 40-page nightmare thread in the Sony support forums with people having problems. 
Uh, so research pays off. You know, it's funny. I'm in a similar boat to Marco. I used, well, I still have a 5.1 setup, but I only have the subwoofer, the center, and the left and right speakers on or installed right now. And that's mostly out of laziness because I didn't have a really good way to wire up the rear speakers without drilling through the floor or drilling through the ceiling. And I just didn't want to deal with any of that. And so I just never, we've been in the house since 2008, still haven't done it. And there are times, there are absolutely times that I miss it without question, but just having proper non built into the TV speakers and a subwoofer makes a world of difference. And even just having that is enough to keep me happy. And yeah, I, mean, I wish I had the rear speakers. There are times we'll watch a movie that that is designed to be particularly immersive. Not that movies aren't in general, and I can't think of a great example, but you know, a movie that clearly you you want to be in the middle of an a- of the action. And I'll miss those rear speakers. But generally speaking, I'm fine. I'm perfectly happy with just the the left right. And I do have center, but you know, left right and sub. See, I think center is even overrated. Like, so, so my setup now is, I just have these uh, this pair of Paradigm Atom bookshelf speakers, which are really nice bookshelf speakers, but just left and right. And uh, it's it's like this is this is a good way to buy speakers. It is the the absolute cheapest model from a really good specialty speaker company. <laughs> and so I think they were like three hundred bucks for the pair, or something like that. And uh, and so I have those speakers powered by this little tiny. Uh, New Force. Uh, I think it's called the UDAC, or it's, it's no, that's not that. It is, isn't it? It's one of it's a some kind of little like New Force amp thing. Uh, that is very buggy and and horrible, but uh, it powers them, and it's like the size of like two Altoids tin. So it's this nice little tiny thing that powers the speakers. And so all I have is left and right, and this little tiny thing powering them that that has this little tiny remote, even smaller than the Apple TV uh, remote, and. It's fantastic. It's great. Like it, the difference between the TV speakers and these left and right, with no centers. Just the difference between TV speakers and these is just that you know what John John. I think this. I think these would address your needs just fine without a center channel. Like it, you you're able to hear what's going on on the TV better at lower volumes because the speakers are larger. They're directed more at you. Uh, they're better quality, and so you can understand things uh, a lot better without having to really crank it up. But it's not—it's not the speaker quality; it's the mix. Like when they mix five point one, they put loud—they put the dialogue mostly on the center channel and louder on the center channel. There's actual separation in a five point one and a good five point one mix. So you—you you need the center channel speaker because they're not going to send those signals to the stereo. And in fact, the more a signal leans toward that, the less you can hear the dialogue because there's almost no dialogue in the left and right. Almost all the dialogue is in the center. That's only if your receiver is terrible. Um, <laughs> every signal, like almost everything, Blu-rays, DVDs, almost everything has a stereo mix. And uh, things things that only have a 5.1 mix will be downmixed. I know, but I don't want them. I know, that, of course, there's surround modes that will just take it, take the stereo signal and, and send it out to the, to the centers and so on, and like, or just do the stereo mix. But I want, like, I, I want to trust the person who did the 5.1 mix to properly mix it between left, right, and center. I find that, I mean, because I've, I've done it the other way. Yes, you can just, I can just, you know, you, I can just power on the left and right speakers and put it on the stereo mix and compare it to what it's like with the 5.1 with the center channel. And I think, I think they spend more time on the 5.1 mixes, and I think I, I find them, you know, better than than the stereo mixes well regardless so i have in my opinion a very very close approximation to the value of a full system a full 5.1 but with just these two 
relatively small bookshelf speakers that are each about, uh, let's see, two inches taller than the new Mac Pro and uh, about twice as deep. And <laughs> Do you have a sub? Do you have a sub with it? No. that's Because I hate external subs. I, I absolutely hate subwoofers. Uh, I've never had an external sub on a system that I cared about for good reason because I don't like the way they sound. Uh, I don't like the the imprecise kind of vague source of where it's coming from because you know wherever the heck you tucked it behind the tv or whatever it doesn't it never sounds right i like speakers that are big enough to do their own subwoofering so these you know bookshelf speakers for tvs are perfectly fine and for low volume audio that's perfectly fine too um if i if i wanted to get a lot more volume i would go with floor standing like you know the full floor height speakers um i really really hate external subwoofers they do they do not sound good they never have sounded good well they're always they're always configured terribly in people's houses like if you've only heard them in the stores in people's houses they are just massively miscalibrated and overboosted and just super terrible i hate them because they're gigantic i mean there's no getting around the that fact too. that now you have you have this gigantic thing but other than that like when correctly calibrated and most of the good receivers these days have some usually pretty crappy but way better than nothing calibration mode where you can just put a you know an omnidirectional mic where your head would be and it just runs test tones to adjust the levels and i was amazed at how how low level it put the sub like basically i was like is the sub working at all like because it didn't you didn't hear that annoying kind of where is that rumbly thing coming from the the appropriate level for subs according to this adjustment thing and i totally believe it now is basically like i can't hear it at all it just sounds like my speakers have more bass uh, and in the few movies, they really just, you know, thunder that out with an explosion. It works well there, but otherwise you should basically not hear it. You should just make, you know, my crappy, tiny, even smaller than bookshelf speakers feel like, oh, they actually have low end. It's a miracle of science, but really it's like that, that sub that like, you're not even sure it's turned on, but it is. Well, see, if, <laughs> if you need that little of it, then I think, you know, if you're, I mean, you know, your speakers are smaller. That's that's a different story. But like, you know, if if I'm willing to have bookshelf speakers, uh, even compact bookshelf speakers, I think that's big enough. You know, the you know the woofers on them are big enough to provide. How, how big is the uh, how big is the biggest cone or whatever? Um, give me a sec. Including the rubber gasket around it, it's five inches across. Yeah, that's probably, I mean, five or six inches is probably plenty, but my speakers are super tiny. That was one of my requirements for my speakers is because you've seen the room that they're in. Like, I have no place to put speakers, so I'm like, well, these just, they better be really small so I can tuck them in, you know. Like, you know, those pictures on my mantle, one of the the surround speakers is, like, there amongst the pictures. So it has to be pretty much the height of a picture and inconspicuous as possible, you know. So I definitely need to sub with those, otherwise it would just be, you know, nothing. My the biggest cone is, like, three and a half or four inches in there. Yeah, I also, I, I greatly, you know, especially as I get older, um, and of course, you know, the influence of my wife and wanting to keep the house reasonably looking is, is a different uh, impact as well. But certainly as I get older, I, I'm valuing more and more having fewer, smaller things, you know, and less complexity in the setup. Like, that's another reason why I don't want a receiver, like just, and why I don't want 5.1 or 7.1 surround. Like, I'm so happy just having decent left right speakers if the tv could power them that would be one more thing that i could remove but it can't so oh well um i just i'm very happy just keeping things as simple as i possibly can and then you went and had a kid <laughs> well hey that now there's less for him to wreck or pull down or uh, you know pull the wires out of or eat or anything else so it's all good hooray thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week transporter uh ting and squarespace and we will see you next week now the show is over They didn't even mean to begin 
Cause it was accidental Oh, it was accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental Oh, it was accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L I-S-S, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O, A-R-M, E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, U-S-A, Syracuse, it's accidental. So I went on this trip. Did you survive it? I did, I think, yeah. Um, the trip was uh, my 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 friend from my friend from high school was getting married. Uh, I'm the best man, and for his bachelor party, he wanted to do the ski trip in Seattle. And one of the things that we um, we also had the idea, you know what? Let's try a land game because we we were the, we were the two that always started all the land games back in high school, and we would you know play land games of Total Annihilation, and then later on, you know, more recent games, mostly Total Annihilation. So we thought, you know, we we both have like Apple laptops, and a few a few of the other guys who were coming on the trip also were part of this group and also had laptops. So let's let's just try to set up, you know, basic land gaming. Okay, you would think in this day and age this would be easy. Uh, that we're trying to run a game that came out in 1996. Uh, how hard could it po- or 1997? Excuse me. How hard could it possibly be to run this game in 2014? And so I, you know, first we tried a few things. I tried like, you know, what would be easiest is if I can get it running in VirtualBox because VirtualBox is free, and then I can just copy the VM between anyone's computer that needs it and just launch it, and we could be guaranteed to have the same setup on everyone's computer because I'm just copying a VM. That would be the best. Well, first the issue, all right. Well, what version of Windows do you run? Well, do you want to pirate some, or do you want to like, you know, you know, how do you deal with copying it if it's activation and all this crap? Then I, I settled on. I was going to get the uh, the version of Windows 8.1 that Microsoft is offering for a developer preview right now for free because you can download it. There's no activation. Uh, it only runs for 90 days, but that's all we needed, to, we needed it to run for. So fine, right? So I get all that and uh, try installing it in VirtualBox. And the game just does not run right in VirtualBox. Like the, you know, no, we wanted to play three games: uh, Total Annihilation, Moonbase Commander, and if possible, Supreme Commander, which is much newer and higher higher needs. Um, so we wanted to run those three games, and you know, VirtualBox doesn't just doesn't doesn't run right. Uh, we tried Parallels. I tried Parallels before I got there because um, Parallels is supposedly the best one of these things at gaming. Um, disaster, by the way really annoying like parallels the, like the crap it installs without asking you is really obnoxious um it really yeah i, I would have recommended vmware and you would have said but they, they say parallels is better with games they only say that because well i tried that next <laughs> yeah uh vmware was always my choice because it was always the the much more professionally made of the two and you could feel it like in, in all the different various decisions um just to seem like the the more adult version um so i tried vmware also didn't work right uh, for these games so i thought okay well I guess I can try boot camp. So I tried boot camp. Everything works great. Now I get everything set up and I, and I, and I, in order to to try to mitigate, um, having to mess with computers for hours on end, because I knew we wouldn't have time or motivation to do that on a ski trip where, you know, we would get home from the ski resort, get home from dinner and just want to like, just want to 
start a game in 10 minutes and play. You know, if it takes more than 10 minutes to set up once we're there, no one's going to want to do it. So let's just get, make it simple as possible. So, all right. Boot camp, I know this. Even on the most recent version of Windows, boot camp worked great. And I bought the Steam versions of these two games. Of TA, I could copy, but like Moonbase and uh, Subcom, I bought the Steam versions because they were, they were so cheap. These are such old games. The total was $11 to buy both of them. So I said, all right. So I emailed everyone. I said, all right, here's what you got to do. If you have a PC laptop, bring it. Install the Steam versions of these two games. Here's the links. It'll toss you only $11. Please install them now before you get here. That way, when you get here, everyone has the same versions of the game. Everyone has the same games. Everyone has the same maps. Everything's updated. No one has to deal with CDs or CD checks or CD cracks or any of that crap that we used to deal with trying to get land games going when we were teenagers. So this should work perfectly. So I get there. One guy doesn't have it in boot camp. It's, you know, it's only in VMware, which doesn't work uh, and, do- and can't boot it. One guy has installed one of the games, not the other game, and hasn't launched Steam in a while, so everything has to update on this like satellite connection in the woods that we have at this cabin. We spend probably a good 45 minutes trying to get one game started of the simplest possible thing, passing USB keys back and forth, copying all this crap between the two computers, having Steam launch and then fail and then not connect to the internet and then not and then want to update itself, not have the updates. And of course, of course, nobody had actually done what I said or they'd done half of it or they'd done you know, a half-assed job of the things I did say. And finally, we get the games both launched, both running, and can't see each other over the network. And we're just like, ah, screw it. Let's get some bourbon. And that's the night became a bourbon night instead of a video gaming night. And this is like, I tell all this here because it's like, this is, this is still like the state of trying to get a land game going. So, I mean, in, in the end of the day though, your evening became better because it involved bourbon instead of old ass PC games. To be fair, it probably would have ended in bourbon regardless, but at least the bourbon would have, <laughs> at least that would have been after the games or maybe during, you know, halfway through the games. Uh, yeah. Ugh. You should have brought Nintendo 64. You could have hooked up a TV and played Goldeneye. Oh, amen to that. That would have worked. That actually, yeah, because we, we, yeah, we played a lot of that too. That actually would have been better. I mean, I, the whole time I was thinking, like, of course we all had to be, like, the difficult nerds and like these weird PC RTS games. Like, why couldn't we all just like an Xbox game? It'd be so much easier. <laughs> nope. No, we have we have to be difficult for a little while anyway. Pretty soon, you're not going to be able to plug a Nintendo 64 into the back of a TV because the you know nothing will have composite ports. But in some crappy hotel, composite <laughs> ports are still probably there for a while. And I think you probably can get some sort of like cheap up converter box to, that has HDMI out on it. Yeah, that's one more thing you got to bring. Like you know, a, a couple of laptops take up less space in a bag than an N64 and a few controllers. I know, but the N64 is like you control that. That's that's the the, the flaw in your plan was relying on other people to successfully do something. You're like, well, I've done the hard work. I figured out what you guys need to do. All you need right. to do now is execute on this simple plan, and that was you know that's your downfalls. Like, you, if you wanted this to work, you should have been like calling each person on the phone a week before, three days before, day of, and say, have you done all this stuff? Have you launched Steam? You're not running in a VM, are you? I know you might be doing that boot camp means you reboot the whole computer and you just see windows no it's not in a, you know like you have to like nag them to death until you confirm and then like do test games remote you know <laughs> from each other to make sure you can see each other over the network and they have different steam ids and you, you log, you're connecting to steam for the first time from this computer please re-enter your password oh i don't remember yep. what it is like there's so many there's so many places it could go wrong it does not surprise me that you were unsuccessful well and, and another idea i had was to just rent like four laptops before i got there 
and because you can rent laptops from from some places, including TechServe here in the city. So I'm like, you can just rent a laptop. I'm like, let me just configure them before I even go and just bring my own. Bring a stack of four like 13 inch MacBook Pros pre configured to work exactly the way I want to. Um, but that would have cost like a thousand dollars, and uh, it didn't. It, I thought, you know. Everyone will have laptops anyway. That would be wasteful. Let, you know, let's see. Let's see what we can do. I'm sure it, it's so easy. You just install any version of of Windows, install the Steam versions of these games, and bring your computer. That's it. Nope, that's not that's not that easy. And this is the good version. Like Steam is just you know is the 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 miracle, the modern miracle of PC gaming is you know that it, like it makes it so much easier. You know, right? No serial numbers, none of that crap. Everyone has the same version. It's always updated. Like, come on. Nope, can't even do that. Sounds like fun. Although, you know, I'm a little disappointed that you didn't try to bring all these computers through uh, either gate check or through baggage claim or whatever, because, oh, man, they, I, I, there's no reason why that should be a problem, but there would have been a humongous problem with that. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, why does one person need four laptops? <laughs> Clearly, you're, you know, trying to hack the NSA. Ugh. What else could you be using four laptops for? Ay, ay, ay. What else going on? I mean, there's this Pano thing. There's not much to say about Pano. I, I wrote a thing about it a, a few months ago. I'll link to it again tonight, I think. Um, but basically, uh, it's linked to an article um, by uh, one of my favorite writers, Dan Rutter uh, of Dan's Data. And uh, he wrote this big thing, basically debunking the whole, like collecting a whole bunch of debunkness in one place, debunking the whole thing about how, like, <laughs> you know, it, it turns out you can't hear the difference between you know, over 44.1 kilohertz files and over 16-bit resolution and, you know, all like the, all the uh, supposed benefits of this like high bit rate, uh, high, you know, high sample rate, high, high density music, high definition music rather, um, you know, and there, there is a real thing um, with remastering and, you know, you have like the loudness war making music sound terrible the way it's released on cd and stuff uh and then a lot of these a lot of these high definition uh re-releases that are like at you know one 192 kilohertz or something like that 24 bit 32 bit float whatever it is um, a lot of them will have a, a better more more even less fm radio like mastering so that they will sound better just because like they were mastered level uh better and they were you know, crushed and compressed less uh, in the dynamic range. So there are lots of reasons why some of these things sound better, but none of them are um, the the bit rate or the, or the uh, sample rate above a certain point. And that point is pretty much CD quality. Uh, and so, you know, these things like Pana, I mean, God, I could talk forever about audiophile stuff, and I, and I won't, but... Let me quickly interrupt you. For those who don't know, Pano, Pono, Pony honed whatever it's called is this thing by neil young where it's supposed to be a high fidelity portable music player and I, i'm assuming there's a story associated with that is that correct uh yeah it's you know it's just it's basically trying to be uh like a a, a high definition version of itunes so it has the device uh plus the music store that goes along with the device uh, and this will you know this this it's a whole new ecosystem uh, that is, I believe, funded on Kickstarter shortly, or about to be funded on Kickstarter, uh, or at least, rather, it will be put on Kickstarter. I'm not sure if it will succeed, but no, oh, it's already like funded. It's like double funded. Like it wanted 800 grand, and they've got 1.6 pledged already. Yeah, that's not good. Well, well, I think that is good. I, I'm rooting for these this ecosystem to become vibrant because it, what it means is that we'll be able to get like you know 256 kilohertz uh, lossy rips of all of their well mastered tracks and import them into iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's like I, you know, this is one of those things where it would be nice. 
uh, for for you know mastering engineers to have like a market force to make things better. Unfortunately, I think they already do. I, I think um, you know the the general drop in the rev- in the relevance of radio uh, helps a lot. Um, I believe Apple's uh, is it called Mastered for iTunes. Yeah, they're better, but but open them up in an audio app. It's still kind of like a wall of fuzz. Like they're the dynamic range. <laughs> dynamic range is basically what we're looking for. The like. You know, from the loudest to the quietest thing, you just look at the waveform. If the waveform looks like one big scriggle that's the that goes the full height of the thing all the way across, that's that's your problem. And their their master for iTunes ones are better in that regard, but they're nothing like if you look at like the levels on like vinyl or whatever, where there was the quiet sections were barely little ripples, and then the loud sections just started to go close to touching the edge. This is all like you know graphed on a line where maximum, um, you know, amplitude or whatever, but. I think I have faith in the the mastering that these people are going to do with their crazy high bit rates and everything, that that mastering will be more aggressive in terms of dynamic range than even the mastered for iTunes. So that's why I actually I was serious. I actually do look forward to if I can get, you know, some of my favorite songs as as 256 kilobit uh, rips of those lossless, crazy high bit rate ones uh, that I'll be able to experience the song in a new way with a much bigger dynamic range, even better than the mastered for iTunes. Right. I mean, and that's that's all very valid, but like it's it's like you know, it's it's kind of like the placebo effect. It's like, well, you can argue that it works, but it doesn't really work for the reason people think it works. It's like like this is the kind of thing like these these tracks might sound better, but it's not because of any of the technical things that that they have on their platform. It's it's entirely because of the input, uh, you know, the how the music is mastered going in. Like that's that would be why they sound better. Uh, you know, if it turns out if you do, uh, there's a there's a number of sites that offer this. Like, uh, man, I forget. Let me see if I have it on my autocomplete. Yeah, this is really cool. If you go to mp3ornot.com, this is this is hilarious. Um, so it, it it lets you play uh, two. Play, it basically automates an ABX test. So an ABX test, uh, in brief, and please, people of science, I must I apologize if I'm messing this up. Um, an ABX test. So you've heard about A/B tests. You've you know you try try one thing and try another thing and see which one you think is better. And the problem with that is lots of problems with that. But it's it's easy to like hear things that aren't there or perceive things that aren't there, and, and you don't really know. So an ABX test is you have two unlabeled inputs or even labeled doesn't really matter. Two, two inputs A and B, um, and then you have this X, and you say, all right, here's A, here's B. You can listen to them as much as you want. Here's X. You can listen to that as much as you want. Is X A or B? And so MP3 or not, uh, this site is, is an example of one of these things. So it says, all right, so you have you know A and B, like A is a high bit rate MP3, B is a lower bit rate MP3. What is X? Is it the is it the 320k or is it the 128k MP3? And I tried on I tried this site on my setup, which I currently have what many people would argue would be the best headphones in the world. I could not tell a difference between these two. I I failed. I, I got it right about half the time, which means that I'm failing. You know, that's that's you know random guessing. So I could not tell the difference reliably on this site. And you know, people, there's always more things you can blame. You can blame my lack of sophisticated ears. You can blame some other part of my setup. You can blame the fact that these are both MP3s and neither one of them is a lossless file or whatever the case may be. Um, but it's one of those things like hearing the difference is largely psychological with a lot of these things and if you and a lot of the a lot of the possible upgrades and enhancements in fidelity or hardware advancedness uh in a lot in the audio world a lot of them uh 
don't stand up to ABX testing, including things like uh, fancy cables or even fancy amps. Uh, a lot of this just does not hold up. And you know, the reality is most people, even, even the audiophiles who own and buy and talk about these things, usually even they have a pretty hard time in ABX testing telling the difference between things like MP3 bit rates, uh, fancy cables, and fancy amps. Yeah, for MP3 bit rates, a lot of it depends on if the actual specific song they're playing to you happens to hit one of the areas that MP3 encoding is bad at encoding, like this pathological cases with like, you know, you get that MP3 sizzle, but only for certain sounds with a certain cadence and a certain frequency. So if you play some song that does not have any of that noise in it, you won't like that's what people are hearing is basically is the artifacts. Like it's fine when, you know, you're not running into one of these areas where the ways MP3 cheats uh, end up becoming visible. And so, like, if it's, like, you know, just, I don't even know if it's ever, like, sort of middle-of-the-road classical music with sort of, like, nice tones, and it's not, like, high-frequency, high-pitched drumming and cymbals where you might start to hear, hear a little bit of those artifacty sizzles. But that's basically what I have bad ears to. And if I, if I was trying to listen for something, what I'd be listening for are those artifacts. And I know those artifacts from the days of, like, you know, 96 kilobit and all the, you know, way super overcompressed. Like, those same artifacts, at the, like, oh, in this part of the song, I can totally hear all this fuzz keep cranking up the bit rate around 128 pretty much almost all of that fuzz goes away but there's maybe a little bit left uh 256 i i can't hear anything and 320 certainly i can't hear any difference but what i do hear definitely from you know as i have lots of copies of the same music bought on remastered on cd and stuff like that and the original on cd and then the crappy original cd release i hear differences in the mix and that's more important to me than the bit rate at this point yeah i i definitely notice uh older like i i still have pretty much my entire music collection from whenever I started first started amassing MP3. So 96, something like that. Uh, and the MP3s that were ripped way back then when our tools weren't as good, nobody knew what settings to use. Arguably nobody does today, but certainly more do than 96. I can absolutely hear compression artifacts, particularly with symbols, uh, especially there. I can, I can hear a lot of artifacts, but Compare that to anything ripped in the last five to 10 years. And I agree with you that once you hit, for me, it's about 192. Over 192, I don't think it makes a difference. I feel like 128, maybe it's in my head, but I feel like 128, I can still hear the artifacts. 192 is all I need, and then I'm happy. So, titles. Let's go with the woodpecker. Fair enough. All right, let's go to bed. Well, I will say that um, I'm very close to releasing the iOS 7 update for Fast Text, and I really need to do it well in the next six months, so I beat Overcast. Can you put a foot, <laughs> some kind of feet-based Easter egg in there for me? I'll, I'll figure something out. <laughs> and if you don't beat Overcast, you should really feel ashamed, because the relative complexity of these applications is not... not... Damn it, John. Don't you sell Fast Text short like... No, it's so true. I just set myself back a month. You should be able to beat me pretty easily. Yeah, well, I've been working with uh, with the designer, Jason, Jacob Swidak, and uh, he's been very good. And on a wildly unrelated note, I've been playing with Node.js a lot. I really like it. That kind of makes me feel dirty. That's good, man, that you're actually doing something more recent than anything John and I will probably ever do. What are you talking <laughs> about? I do Node stuff all the time. <laughs> Seriously? Uh, it makes me hate JavaScript even more. <laughs> no, I'm a web developer. I do JavaScript all the time. JavaScript is a fact of life. A sad, sad fact of life. Well, yes, but doing JavaScript in the browsers is in many, well, 
it, it's a far cry. No, from it, no, it's not the browser. Writing real programs in, with JavaScript, which is basically what any web developer is doing at this point, you're not just like, oh, this is a way for me to script the browser. That age passed long ago. We're writing real programs in JavaScript. And then when you have to write a real program in a language, that's what makes you really hate it because you're like, just, if I had this feature from this other language, this wouldn't be so stupid. Right, you start hitting all the little walls and all the things that are like still kind of half built and still immature. Or even just like every time I just have to do string manipulation, it's like you were so close, you had all the features, you just <laughs> their syntax is so stupid. Of course, know? a Perl programmer would complain and moan about string manipulation. Anything, I'll take it. Pick another language. PHP, Ruby, Sed, Awk, anything has better, Auk. like <laughs> more con- more convenience uh, string manipulation than JavaScript. Every time I got to oh, do like God. you know string dot match and then wrap the whole thing in parens and and subscript off the first one because index zero is the original string again for some insane re- like i just it's not it's not huffman coded to use Perl parlance the the most common things are not short and simple the most common things are just as stupid as the complicated things you're so bitter and jaded and old it's so funny but anyway yeah node oh, node is node is a fun way to did you have you tried that ghost thing that's speaking of a nice node app to look at the what ghost it's like uh, uh what do you call it that would change his blog to it I, he's, I heard about it from him it's a way to run a blogging engine they have a hosted version that they charge an arm and a leg for but it's open source and you can just download it and run on your local system and it's just a node-based blogging engine it's like oh that's exactly what i'm writing right now because you did it and marco did it and i didn't want to be left out damn it i did not make a, a blogging engine i made a way to produce html files that i are sync up to, a, <laughs> to a server. <laughs> anyway but yeah, like and, and like I said, mine is not it's not a system at all. But a ghost is, and if you're making one yourself, you should just download uh, Ghost and just look at the source because it's it's eminently understandable and it's a neat little app. Like I don't like it particularly. I wouldn't use it as a blogging engine, but seeing it's it's kind of the first like example because it's open source of like here you go, here's the whole thing, run it yourself if you want, uh, and it's small enough you can understand it. Yeah, but then that defeats the whole purpose. Then then I could just use Tumblr. No, no, just look at it to get, like, ideas of how they structure things is, like, I thought it was a prototypical example of how do you write a modern node-based web application without including umpteen billion frameworks, although they do install a lot of other modules, but uh, it was pretty straightforward. You have to consider that I'm way too self-obsessed to do anything smart like that. Plus, I'm way too bad at Node, and I'm sure if I looked at this, which I will, I would look at this code and be like, oh, 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 I don't know what the hell's going on. No, I, you will find it completely understandable. Like, everything is extremely straightforward in it, I think. Fair enough. Well, my blogging engine, which is barely an engine that basically just regurgitates uh, Markdown and does a couple and builds an RSS feed and does a couple other very small things, it is sitting at 309 lines of code. And by that, I mean there's 309 lines in this file, some of which are comments, a lot of which are white space, etc. So there's not that much to it. I, I'm, I'm really enjoying it for basic stuff. I wouldn't want to do it for, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to use Node for anything serious or complex, but for basic stuff, it's pretty nice. You know, if it were Rails, you could build the entire blogging system in one line of code. I've never done Rails, actually, nor Ruby, ever. I've done, I've dabbled with Python. I've done like basic, basic, basic Python and basic, basic, basic PHP, which is to say I've never gone object-oriented in either. Um, but Node is cool. And JavaScript ain't so bad. Makes you think about things differently, which, which is kind of neat. All right, glad you agree. Jerks. <laughs>